Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It's Wednesday morning, November the 2nd, 843-661-0937 is our number. I won't even say good morning, Royal Rev of Ready. I'll say congratulations to Freehold. That's right. The Phillies had their big boy pants on last night. And home runs. Bryce Harper is who Bryce Harper is who everybody thought Mike Trout was going to be. But I mean, you see where I'm headed. I mean, those two guys were um along the same career path. Um Trout I don't know about today. Well, I mean, maybe today, Frio, you tell me. I mean, is Trout the best player in all of baseball today? You know, it's funny. I was actually just thinking about that last night when Harper hit that home run. Mm-hmm. Because we, when I said right now we have the best player in baseball, you were like, well, Trout's been the best player, which I agree. Over the last five, ten years, I say <laughs> Trout was better. But I think right now, like say the Braves could have either one of them, right? Right now, going into the next season, who would you rather have, Trout or Harper? Yeah, the way Harper's swinging the bat right now, probably Harper. 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 Yeah, Harper. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, but he, he, how many post games has Trout played in? Postseason games? Uh, I don't think any. I don't think maybe any. not. Yeah. Maybe not. But he's been a phenomenal player. I oh, mean, he's yeah. been a sure. generational player. Yeah. I mean, he's probably been the best player of his time. Trout. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like this. Harper is playing now like we thought he would. I mean, we didn't think he'd hit a home run every game. I mean, nobody hits 162 home runs in a game. But I mean, he. Um, He's been somewhat of an enigma, and and Trout has not. I mean, Trout has lived up to the billing. At times, Harper's lived up to the billing. At other times, you're like scratching your head like, what's going on here, dude? And I don't know if his arm – I mean, he seems to be a complicated personality, and it's easy to blame complicated personalities for their misgivings or shortcomings when they don't live up to the hype. Trout's been what? C- kind of Mr. America, right? Clean cut. You know what I mean? I mean, he d- doesn't have the big burly beard. He doesn't have seem to have the attitude – and um, and and people give that kind of guy the benefit of the doubt more than they give um, Bryce Harper. But yeah, I mean, right now they both have electric talent. I mean, I keep saying that word electric, but there's some guys that are just. I mean, their talent is just superior than everybody else. Acuna could be that. I mean, he really and truly could. I'll say this: in in a weird way, Acuna reminds me of Harper. I mean, he's somewhat of an enigma. I mean, you know there's talent there. I mean, the guy hits a backside ball off the end of the bat and it goes 380 or 90 feet. I mean, you know, God can't – I mean, that, that's God-given. You can't teach that kind of bat speed. And Harper has some of those same um, qualities and characteristics. And I am – I mean, I, I really and truly was World Series neutral until Dusty Baker said what he said in USA Today, um, how offended um, he was that there was no, you know, native – I mean, uh, American-born – a black men on either roster. It's a lot of white guys and Hispanics and Latinos and I mean just Central and South Americans who have really and truly dominated a lot of baseball rosters in recent time. And um and then Dusty said you know something about he felt oppressed and I, I mean I just I've had enough of that. Yeah. I mean I really and truly have had enough I, of that. I was a Dusty Baker fan. Well, let me read the article I, I sent you from yeah. USA Today. But I mean, it it makes clear that he is a um he's kind of an angry man. Um, I mean, baseball's been extremely good to Dusty Baker, but he doesn't think it's been good enough to people like Dusty Baker, I guess. What were you saying, Freehold? Okay, so um, the first five or six years of my like professional career, I was a sports videographer, producer, and uh, I used to travel all over the tri-state area. And uh, I went to Newark, New Jersey, if you know anything about sure. Newark. It's a really... Yeah. So um, I was talking to one of the coaches. He was really young, maybe about 23 or 24 talking about his roster because I was covering their baseball game. And he was like, well, I had to bring people up from our middle school because they didn't have enough guys. And I was like, why? He was like, honestly, young black kids don't want to play baseball. 
So I think it's more of a cultural thing, really. Well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, baseball, apple pie, what is it? Uh, baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. I mean, if you're an African-American, the, um, the reminiscing of baseball is probably not a lot of fun for you. I mean, you know, when you talk about American history and nostalgia and all these other sorts of things, I mean, Chris Rock, the, the comedian, laid out kind of a, um, a reasoning or a rationale why African-Americans don't play a lot of baseball. In other words, it's um, they, they don't have fond memories of that period in American history when we romance nostalgically about um, the game of baseball. Long story short, Bryce Harper looks right now to be a man possessed and obsessed with um i mean that first pitch home run yeah i mean he smokes it man i mean but he does that i'm telling you when he gets on one of those rolls he does that and trout now i'll go back to trout i think we would agree trout plays his baseball when the majority of us are sleeping right so we really i mean randy johnson for years and years and i was told how good randy johnson was but i never saw the guy pitch i mean he was in seattle when his game started i'm in the bed asleep um as a, as a Braves fan, I can remember watching some of the national, when they were in the NL West, I mean, they'd make those road trips and you'd try to, you know, stay up as late as you could to watch the Braves and the, and the Dodgers play. But that was kind of a big deal in my, you know, Brave world. The Dodgers were the Dodgers. I mean, they're, they're one of the story franchises in all of Major League Baseball. I'm not saying the Dodgers are the Yankees, but they're just this side of the Yankees. I mean, is there another team other than the Dodgers? that you think of when you think of winning and tradition and, I mean, Lasorda and, you know, I mean, the Dodgers are a storied, storied franchise. So I never missed a chance to watch the Braves play the Dodgers, but it'd be one o'clock in the morning, you know, before you went to bed. And I'm too old for that. And we've got a new job that requires me to get up much earlier uh, than previously. <laughs> but um, but so, so Trout played the majority of his baseball career while most of us on the East Coast were asleep. You know, we'd see Sports Center highlights and we'd, you know, know he batted 320 and hit, you know, 47 home runs and 127 RBIs and stole 22 bases. I mean, he's always had impressive records, but Harper has been the guy that we thought was going to be Trout's rival. And it looks to me like he is, as I said earlier, possessed and obsessed. So congratulations to the Phillies. They're up 2-1. They'll play again tonight. Today was supposed to be a travel day, but they'll play today to make up for the game that got rained out a couple of days ago and they're hitting um, their stride at the right time they seem to be they remind me a lot of the braves yeah I mean, they're, 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 they, they depend on the home run that they've got a deep pitching staff really good starting pitching and um they just seem to be kind of in buzzsaw mode so to speak and i mean i think you would agree rev the dodgers were better than the Braves or the phillies through the balance of 162 game season but the phillies got hot at about the right time they were kind of overshadowed because of the pennant race the Mets and Braves were involved in. And people kind of lost sight of the Phillies. You know, well, the team can't finish third in a division to win a world championship. <laughs> oh, yeah, they can. Yeah. And they may. Now, once again, the Astros are still a good team, and you can't let your guard down. But if the Phillies figure out a way to win tonight, I mean, it, they're, they're off to the races. I mean, this could be a five-game series with the, uh, with the Phillies winning 4-1. I want to go back to real quick one other sports issue. Uh, Rev and I were talking a second ago, and – I mean, he didn't understand these things, and I said, well, that's why you got me. And that's why I was so, so, interested to hear what you're about to say. So I can provide clarity to yes. some of these confusing issues. Right, because I, I, I'm a little disheartened with well, my Gamecocks. So, so state your case, and then I'll try to um, 
I, I try to comfort you in your moment of concern. I, I don't watch football games like you do in the weeds. We've established that. I mean, I'm like, you know, throw it, catch it, score, run, <laughs> touchdown, yay. You Turn, know, flash those lights. That, that's me. And, and you, right, exactly. The <laughs> sandstorm, do the towel. I mean, all, I mean, that, that's me. Okay, that's my shallow level. That's you're, 99% of the fans. <laughs> you're much deeper and in the weeds. Uh, but I am frustrated, obviously, after going to the game last weekend with the, with the offensive performance of the team. And I'm kind of on the bandwagon of, you know, this Satterfield guy has got to go. He appears not to be getting the job done. I was frustrated because when Beamer was asked about it in the postgame conference, Rattler made some comments, Beamer, you know, uh, made some comments. And then I think on Sunday is when he was asked about uh, Satterfield, are you going to make a change at OC? And he's nope. I mean, he was very stubborn about it, and that was frustrating because it appeared to me he wasn't, I know he is, but that he wasn't aware or wasn't giving the fans any comfort. He sounded bratty. I mean, that's that's the word, word I used yeah, yesterday. That's a good word. He that's sounded word. like the son of a successful coach who didn't um, have to be, didn't have to, a little bit like Ty Gibbs in racing, Joe Gibbs' grandson. I mean, it, when, he, when he wrecked his teammate to win a race, and he wrecked his teammate to win a race, I mean, it didn't move him out of the way. He wrecked his teammate to win a race, he went before the media and he sounded like a bratty, spoiled kid. Shane sounded like a bratty, spoiled kid, uh, both after the game Saturday and then Sunday at his teleconference. I'm not saying he did a mea couple yesterday when they had their talking Tuesday. And I didn't really, I saw, I read a few reports. Well, I mean, he, he did much better. Me I, mean, he, 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 I think he revisited his attitude and demeanor Saturday and Sunday. And I think he believes the fans do deserve an explanation for why they are so awful on offense. I'll give you a stat. I think the Gamecocks have had 55 possessions this year. 36 of the 55 have included one first down or fewer. I mean, that, you can't, I mean, that, that can't be the case. I mean, South Carolina's not Alabama, but they're not Vanderbilt. I mean, that's a Vanderbilt-like stat. That's a Duke-like stat. That's a Northwestern of the Big Ten-like stat. Once, once again, South Carolina is not Georgia. They're not Tennessee. They're not um, Alabama. I'm talking about conference brethren. I mean, they, they're not on that level, but they're not Vanderbilt. And 36 of 55 drives that end in one first down or less is an indictment of the offensive game plan, the schematic design, whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. And, um, and yeah, it's about Jimmy's and Joe's. I mean, the game's always been about Jimmy's and Joe's, but damn, there has to be some X's and O's in there. I mean, there has to be a little bit of intent to get the ball in, in the Jimmy's and Joe's hands. I mean, if you've got two Jimmy's and two Joe's and you know that's your playmakers, then why are the Jimmy's and Joe's not in the game in that given moment? And Shane tried to defend Saturday and Sunday a good buddy of his, Marcus Satterfield, who he hires the offensive coordinator. Yesterday, he didn't. I mean, yesterday he was, we, we got to get better. You know, and, and, and the packages have to include the kids that can make the plays. And we got to revisit that this week to find out why those kids aren't on the field. Um, I mean, it, it, there's no way. I mean, I'll make a prediction. There's no way Satterfield comes back next year. I mean, who's he replaced with? I don't have any idea. I was actually in a conversation yesterday with a good friend of mine um, who's fairly close to the program. And we were talking about potential candidates. You know, do you go get a young guy? I mean, I'll, I'll use an example. Kendall Bryles would, would be um, Garrett Riley were two of the hot shots. I think one's at Baylor. No, one's at TCU, one's at Arkansas. But they're, they're young guys. Uh, they're bright offensive minds. But they're on the fast track to being a head coach. And I think continuity of staff is a big deal. I mean, would I take Garrett Riley today? Of course I would. Absolutely. I'm Kendall Bryles today. Of course I would. But I think if you get Kendall Bryles or, or um, Garrett Riley, you get them for until the phone rings to offer them a head job. 
and, and they'll get that call sooner than later. They're a head coach in grooming and waiting. Um, but there's somebody out there with reading glasses on the end of their nose, a little bit of gray hair, not a lot, but a little bit of gray hair that has been around the block and calling plays and understands how to attack a defense. I mean, that, that's the point I'm making. Who is that person? Don't know. But, but there's a handful of guys out there that can add stability. I mean, Shane's a young coach, never been a head coach. I mean, this is, um, this is his first rodeo, literally. Been around the game forever. There's a lot of difference in being a special teams coach and being a head football coach. But I mean, there's a lot that goes into being a head football coach. And I think the smart thing for him to do is go find someone, once again, with a set of reading glasses on the end of a nose, a little bit of gray hair that knows how to attack a defense. Um, understands, has has a track record of calling ball plays. I mean, you got 40 seconds to make a play call. I mean, there's something, I mean, Spurrier is the best I've ever seen at it. I mean, he was not a great recruiter, uh, not in the most likable guy in the world. You're talking about enigma. I mean, he's kind of a, um, a, a unicorn. He was one of a kind. I mean, you do like him or take him or love him. I mean, I, I've told people before, I hated him at Duke. I hated him at uh, Florida, but I loved him when he was our SOB. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I never said he wasn't an SOB. He was just our SOB when he was on the sideline. But Spurrier was a football savant when it came to looking at a defense and understanding how to attack that defense. And um, and uh, the Gamecock Nation deserves better. And, um, and uh, you know, Shane sounded like, yeah, I mean, I, I know he understands this. I mean, good God, if we understand it, certainly he does. But but he addressed it more aggressively than he did um, fr- Saturday and Sunday. It was a disappointing loss. I mean, it was a disappointing loss against Missouri. And um, and you got to be careful with Vanderbilt. I mean, they, if they go lay an egg like they did Saturday night in Nashville, Vanderbilt will break a forever losing streak in the SEC and upset South Carolina. I do want to say this in, in, in the name of being uh, fair and balanced. Um, Clemson is one of the four teams right now locked in to the playoff. Uh, I didn't think they would be. I really didn't. Uh, the pollsters gave them more credit than I thought they would. Well, the committee, not the pollsters. The committee gave them a little more credit. And if I'm a Tiger fan, that's a big deal. Because now, I mean, that, you know, it seems that I control my own destiny. If I run the table, and I guess the biggest challenge they have before them will be this weekend in South Bend playing a pretty good Notre Dame team that seems to have rejuvenated themselves. But 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 if Clemson's five or six on the outside looking in, there are a lot of things you don't control. In other words, if Georgia and let's hypothetically say that Tennessee beats Georgia, I don't think they will, but for argument's sake, Tennessee goes to Athens, beats Georgia. Tennessee goes to the SEC championship game, loses to Alabama. How do you not put Tennessee and Alabama? I mean, they each beat one another, and they're, you know, number one and three. I mean, if, if Tennessee go, Tennessee's number one, if Tennessee goes to Georgia and loses by a field goal, how far do they drop? Do they drop below Clemson? I don't know. I mean, but Clemson really and truly, I mean, if I were a Tiger fan, I would have really worried about being five or six and having to figure out a way to get to three or four. Them being where they are now appears to me they control their own destiny. Now, now anything can happen. I mean, Ohio State and Michigan have a game of the century, and, you know, the pollsters or the committee once again say, hey, man, Michigan's better than we thought they were, and they could leapfrog Clemson, but I would much rather be where Clemson is today, I mean, obviously, than if they were five or six and some dominoes that they didn't control um, had a lot of influence on their destiny. So, um, yeah, a better day for the Gamecocks in explaining why they suck Saturday night which is quite the, the high-water mark. And um, and Clemson uh, seems to control their own destiny when it comes to potentially making. And none of this matters if they lose in South Bend. 
none of this matters if they lose any ACC championship game. Um, but but they, you know, they're, they're going to be the favorites in every game they play. And it's hard for me to see a scenario where if they take care of business, they're not in the four-team playoff. Now, now, once again, I've said it, I'll say it again. Michigan, Ohio State, three of the four in the SEC are going to have a lot of influence on, on how this shakes out. And if Clemson had been five or six, I'd be real concerned about Ohio State, Michigan, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama. But now that they're four, I, I just think it's going to be a hard time to kick them out of the club if some dominoes fall that get more or present a more confusing ultimate scenario. Let's take a break. We'll be back. That's enough sports. We'll get to, we're what, six days from the midterms? We'll talk politics on the other side. Okay, we got the fun and games out of the way. It's time for business, right? <laughs> yeah. It's time for B-I-D-N-E-S-S, business. We do have an election coming. Yeah, up. let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Breeze, good morning. Yeah, uh, well, I got politics too, but you know, I guess the question, kid, would be, if you took Missouri's coaches at Southern Carolina, and Carolina's coaches at Southern Missouri, they played the game Saturday, which team do you think would win? I think there was that much difference in the way those teams were prepared. I mean, I'm not saying that staff is that much better, but on that given night, I think the difference yeah. absolutely was the coaches. I mean, I just, I just don't know. You know, I mean, the thing is, I played a little bit of football, and you know, and, and sometimes I saw coaches that seemed to be better than others. Let's just say, you know, but um, that government, you got to have some players. You know, you got to have some players. But anyway, uh. Yeah, getting back to this whole thing about racism of Major League Baseball, that is just rich. It really is. I mean, could you you could say the same thing about the University of South Carolina? If you know, if, if the Gate if the Gamecocks had uh, twenty white guys out on the field for four quarters, what do you think that there there would be outrage? Outrage. There'd be protests around the around the stadium. And then, yeah, I mean. This whole racism thing is getting to be way beyond ridiculous, and I've had I've had more than enough of it. I don't put up with it anymore. But uh, my my thing I was getting on too is uh, I wonder why the um, I guess the honest there is an honest media, the people that are honest in the media. I would be finding these policemen in San Francisco fighting these FBI agents on the street, and I put a camera and a microphone in front of them and ask them, what are they, you know, ask them, what are they doing? Why are you covered up? Why are you lying? I would try to find out who it was that uh, took that um, reporter in Washington, D.C. I'd try to I'd go to the FBI agent, because maybe they're scared. I'd go to the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. with a camera and a microphone and ask those guys where he is. I would want to know why I'd find those guys that went into Mar-a-Lago and said, do you feel like you really protect the Constitution doing what you're doing? Do you work? Who do you work for? Are you, are you, you work for the American people or are you working for the Democrat fascist party? And, you know, if the, if the Republicans do take power, just like with Trump at it, and, uh, and, and, and all they, they governed scared. While, while, while Trump was president, and even while the Republicans had the House and the Senate, they still had did nothing whatsoever to stop to do anything about the DOJ, to do anything about the CIA, to do anything about the bureaucrats that are embedded over there that are going to go after me. So if they do take power, what are they? They 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 got to get they got to get rid of a lot of people, and I don't think they got the guts to do it. 
Republicans have been the most gutless people I've ever seen. Here we are in the state of South Carolina, and I would like to ask the representatives, you know, you yourself have said that South Carolina, even though it's considered a red state, Daggold really doesn't govern very conservatively. Do you remember saying that? Yeah, on several fronts, I think I can absolutely argue that point. So what I want to know is why I would like to ask our representatives, why aren't we? And I would like to also say, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if I were a state representative. I guess, so again, I, maybe I would be scared. I might would be. But I would make speeches out there. You know, we all say, well, it's happening with the federal thing. But I would sit there. If I were with the state, I would want to know, well, I would want to let my citizens know, like, what would happen if the FBI were to take you to bar, kid? Let's just say you, you just got to be such a provocateur against the regime. What would the state, what would, what would McMaster and what would the Republicans in the House and the Senate do if Ken Ard was taken by the FBI and just disappeared? What would they do? Because if the federal government comes in and starts taking South Carolina citizens out of their homes like they've been doing in other states, well, that citizen can't turn to the federal government to help them. So the only people that can help them would be by, would be the, the state government, correct? I would imagine that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's getting out uh, there. Well, uh, thank you, Breeze. We, I want to move on. But but I, I want to I touch on something Breeze said. Because I don't believe, and maybe, maybe I mean, I've, I've heard other people say something similar to this. We, we're referring to this as a wave election. And in typical traditional political terms, that's what it looks like. I mean, Nate Silver's 538, for the first time that I've kept up with it, has the Republicans with a 51% chance to pick up the Senate. I mean, it was one in three. I mean, I never bought into that. I never believed that Blake Masters was 12 down or J.D. Vance was seven or eight or nine down. But I want to go back to the, to, to the rationale I'm trying to argue. The reason I'm excited today about the prospects of what may happen this coming Tuesday is I don't think it's a wave election, but rather a political realignment. I told Rev uh, before the show started this morning, the one thing I'm kind of proud of I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, we've made some faux pas on this show and we've got some things <laughs> right on this show. But the one thing that I'm kind of proud of is the majority of you had never heard of Peter Thiel. You had never heard of Blake Masters. You never heard of J.D. Vance. I mean, that's right. A, I mean, a who, couple who of years of, ago. When you first started talking about those guys, who in our area, myself included, had even heard those names? I, I don't know, but I just had a sense. I mean, I had a, I had some something was telling me uh, internally that these guys were going to lead, not a wave. I don't think Teal's interested in a wave. I don't think Vance or Masters are interested in waves. I don't think Kerry Lake is interested in a wave. I think it's a realignment, a political shift in America that, that is going to be, it'll have, I mean, it'll be shockwaves all over the place if it plays out. Now, once again, I don't have any idea. And I think Breeze makes a valid point when he says, how do we govern with this new majority? I mean, if we do get 51, two, three seats in the Senate, if we do have an overwhelming advantage, I mean, you're going to have some, some, um, you're going to have those who don't vote the party line. I mean, you've got swing districts and you've got real hardcore issues and you've got a House seat in New York and that guy or lady can't vote for that, that hardcore America first agenda. So you've got to have there's Romney too. Yeah. You got to have some room for air. You got to have a Romney proof. I mean, you really and truly might have a Romney Murkowski proof. 
I mean, they're doing every McConnell's doing everything he can to get Murkowski elected in Alaska, spending money against a fellow Republican in Chewbacca um, and not against, you know, um, the Democrat in Arizona, the Democrat in New Hampshire, the Democrat in Georgia. But they're spending some money, but not what they should be spending. We shouldn't spend a red cent in Alaska because it's going to be a Republican. That's going to be an establishment Republican in Murkowski or an America first Republican in Chewbacca. Um, But one or the other. Why does it matter? I mean, you know, I get McConnell wants a Republican majority. He wants to be majority leader. Um, but but we're not dealing, I don't think, personally, Reb, that we're dealing with a red wave in the way we traditionally understand red waves. I think we're looking at a political realignment. Part of the political realignment is the number of Hispanics that have declared themselves supporters of America first, the number of African-Americans that have um, declared themselves supporters of America first. Um, yesterday, when the uh, Libertarian announces he's withdrawing his candidacy, now he's staying on the ballot. And some of those stubborn Libertarians will still vote for, you know, just out of principle. Mark Victor is a, a Libertarian in Arizona that recently was polling as high as 4.5%. I mean, I saw and a couple of outliers Blake that Masters. fully endorsed Blake Masters. I mean, but he had to go through the spiel of, you know, Masters isn't perfect. I am because I'm a Libertarian. You know, and we know exactly what to do on war. We know exactly what to do on the economy. I mean, the... the um. The stubbornness and arrogance of a libertarian is very relatable to me. I mean, I can get that way. I mean, I can easily be hard-headed, stubborn, arrogant in my belief of what needs to be done or does not need to be done. But but in, in simple terms, we need to figure out any way possible to get Blake Masters elected to the Senate from Arizona. I mean, that's what we need. I mean, if you're not a liberal socialist Democrat, Blake Masters is your chance. And Victor yesterday tried to encourage his supporters. And once again, I've seen him as low as two. I've seen him as high as six. I think the six is more of an outlier than the two. The Libertarian in a state like Arizona is traditionally going to get three, three and a half percent of the vote. That may be enough to get masters over the top. Um, I'm encouraged this morning because there are multiple polls now that show the New York gubernatorial race is a dead heat. If the New York gubernatorial race is a dead heat, and that poll is legitimate, the Republicans will win New Hampshire. They have a chance to win Washington. They will win Georgia. They will win Arizona. They will win Nevada. I'm using those states because those are flips. I mean, they're going to win Ohio. I mean, they found a really good candidate who probably is our best candidate moving forward to groom other than DeSantis. I mean, talking about a dream ticket. Yeah, you said something on Twitter yesterday about Vance. Well, I think J.D. Vance has all the makings of a potential president of the United States. I mean, there's wow. no doubt about that. I mean, he's the he's the intellectual underpinning of the next phase of America First. I mean, there's a thoughtfulness about his his demeanor, his attitude, his answers, uh, his stances on policy. I mean, J.D. Vance is a very very solid America First candidate, and he's going to win Ohio. I think going away, and I think the only reason Tim Ryan appeared yesterday with Brett Baer and Marshall McCallum was he knows that he's done. I mean, you, you got to roll the dice. You got to throw the hell. You got to do the Ross Chastain when you know it's the only chance you got. So, so Tim Ryan kind of did a Ross Chastain and agreed to sit down with two Fox News personalities. <laughs> it into the wall. Well, then Martha McCallum got after him a little bit. I mean, Brett Baird didn't because that's not what Baird does. But McCallum kind of pinned him down on a few things, and I thought they were light on on JD Vance. I mean, I thought it was a kind of um, it was weird to see, but you had some moderators that I thought cut the Republican a break instead of the Democrat. Let's go to the phone. Here's Barry in Chirag. Morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. 
Hey, Ken, I'm going to go, uh, if you can write this down, I'm going to go 55 for the Senate, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say 42. We're going to pick up 42 in the House because I think there's some uh, outliers as far as, like, you know, the Kerry Lates is going to gonna bring some. Uh, JD's going to bring some. Just house house races we didn't think we, we could win. I think New York we could flip. I think we could win the House just out of New York. Um, Arizona – had five Democrats could flip to seven two for uh for Republicans uh with the latest polls out in Arizona. So um I think we pick it up in Washington, uh New Hampshire. I think flipped yesterday or was it New Hampshire or Vermont? Well, I mean there's a there's a Saint Aslam poll that has bowled up a point in New Hampshire. Right. I mean I'm like I mean, holy crap. Huge. I mean when I see that poll I'm like holy crap. I mean, they, an incumbent Democrat in New Hampshire doesn't lose unless they do something real stupid. And Hassan hadn't done anything real stupid except run as a Democrat, <laughs> you know, when Biden's the president. That's right. And I think we need to pay attention, uh, a big time attention to, you know, how many governors we take and then down, down ballots. Uh, I think we're moving good. I, I think, like you said, Blake Masters, J.D. Vance, Carrie Lake. I think Carrie Lake's it. I mean, I really do. She's the real deal. Uh, I think DeSantis could get in trouble, uh, Ken, if if he really wants to go against Trump. Uh, He's not going against Trump. I mean, trust me. I mean, I've got some sources. I'm going to trust you, Ken. There's no way DeSantis. Well, thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. And and what Barry's talking about, guys, and this gets a little bit complicated, and this gets into cross tabs and, you know, referencing polls. It looks to me like, and I talked to Robert a little bit, it looks to me like, in the states that have a statewide race, the House members are going to have coattails. I mean, they, in other words, if you're in a hotly contested race in New York, but you've got a gubernatorial race, that's going to drive turnout. If you're in a House race in California, we don't have that sort of comp- competitive statewide race. But if you're in, um, I mean, that's where the state houses will flip. I mean, some of these swing districts will, will be heavily read or heavily influenced by the state election. But if I'm running for a House seat in Pennsylvania, the Republicans' odds increase because there's a Senate race statewide and it's driving turnout. Um, Where I don't see a lot of energy is when there's not a statewide race. If you're running for a House District 47, you know, in uh, in Texas, I think it's I think it's still as it always has been. I mean, it's a lean D or a lean R. But if you are in a lean D district running as a Republican in a state that has a hotly contested Senate race or a gubernatorial race, you have a good chance to win. I mean, I think there's three and a half, four points there. I mean, I think the polls, and I don't want to say they're underestimating because you don't know if people are answering the question. But but I think if you're running as a, if you're running in a congressional district in a state like Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Ohio, New York, Florida, I mean, Florida has a hotly contested, we thought it was going to be real hotly contested, Senate and gubernatorial race. I mean, it's not going to be close, but it's driving turnout. People are going to vote for that Republican gubernatorial candidate, that Republican senatorial candidate, and in turn, the, the, the House candidate gets the benefit of the doubt. That's, I mean, that, that would be traditionally a wave election. But once again, Reb, because of the, the, the people who are going to the poll, Trump's not on the ballot. I mean, this is the first time America First has a chance to prove itself without the cat daddy on the ballot, right? I mean, the, you know, the, the, the grand poopah of America First is not on the ballot. So can Blake Masters drive turnout? Can J.D. Vance drive turnout? 
J.D., I mean, Blake Masters is gaining the benefit of Kerry Lake being such a charismatic and photogenic um, candidate. And, and he's going to benefit enormously from her being such a uh, capable candidate. But, but when I look at some of the polling, and I've looked at a lot of this. I mean, I really spent about an hour and a half yesterday in my truck eating a turkey sandwich, um, going over some of these cross tabs. And if you are in a state, if you're in a marginal race, in a state that has a, a statewide race, Pete, you're going to have coattails. I mean, you're going to, I mean, you're kind of along for the ride. So they're not going to the poll to vote for that congressional seat. They're going to the poll to vote for that Senate candidate, that gubernatorial candidate. They're trying their damnedest to flip New York red. I mean, I don't think, when I read that poll yesterday, I just kind of scratched my head. I mean, there are two polls came out yesterday that have um, Zeldin and uh, Holick, uh, Hochul, Hochul in a dead heat. But that's mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that that that's it's James Carville. I mean, that happens. I mean, that, that, that happens. We we. I mean, God bless us all. I mean, it'll be the end of the Democrat. But I mean, that's what you get when you rig an election, when you, when you do things you shouldn't have done, and you elect an eighty-one-year-old senile man. You pay the price. I mean, it's a little bit of a sugar high, no doubt about it. I mean, you beat Trump fair and square, huh? So you say. Um, <laughs> well, but I think they stole it fair and square, and I've said that. And I'll keep saying that. But but when that happens. I mean, you got to accept the reality of, yeah, you, you elected an 82-year-old yeah. who basically won because he wasn't Trump. I mean, he, even those who believe the election was fair and square believe he won because and he wasn't Trump. The cake is he's terrible at the job. Well, I mean, you should hear what he said yesterday. I mean, he said, the reason we've got high inflation is the war in Iraq. <laughs> and he corrected and himself. And then he comes back and says, no, it's the war in Ukraine. I should know better because my son died in Iraq. He has said his son died in Maryland. But his son served in Iraq, but his son didn't die. He has said that multiple times. And here's what I'm beginning to wonder. Does he really believe that? I mean, there's a difference in slip of the tongue. I mean, we all goof up. I say things that are wrong. I mean, I talk four hours every morning. But Biden has said this repeatedly, that his son died in Iraq. And I wonder, and I'm being serious, I wonder if he's not kind of convinced himself that that is is how he remembers it. Because he doesn't remember much. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I want to make sure I understand what you're saying about the statewide. So, so the states where there's a statewide Republican candidate mm-hmm. that the that that bodes better or well for the other races in that. To state. me, it looks like in some of the polling data. And and once again, I'm not a pollster. I'm somebody who's run for office, so I understand polls to some degree, and I host a four-hour radio show Statewide or governor every races morning. and Senate races. Any state that has a gubernatorial race or a, a race for the Senate seems to me to increase the likelihood of a lean D flipping. If you don't okay. have that, that, you know, that, that intense battle at the state level, the, the, it goes back to normal. I mean, they're, they're, I, that's a weird way to say it. I'm sure pollster could say it better than I can. But in Ohio, if there's a lean D district in Ohio, it and it flips. The point I it probably flips because JD Vance had coattails. If there's a lean D district in Georgia, it probably flips because Walker had coattails. Kemp had coattails. You get kind of a double whammy. Now you've got some states like Georgia and Arizona that I personally believe the Senate candidate is benefiting from the gubernatorial coattails. Lake is outperforming Masters. Kemp is outperforming Walker. So Walker wins by one or two points. Does he, if Kemp does not have coattails, does does Masters win in Arizona? 
And I heard yesterday Ari Fleischer said there's a 25% chance that the Republicans get 55 or six seats. Well, the 25% chance is holding Pennsylvania, holding Ohio, holding Missouri, picking up New Hampshire, picking up Georgia, picking up Arizona, picking up Nevada, and then get uh, maybe pick up Washington. I think New Hampshire and Washington are reaches. Despite it being a realignment, despite it being a wave election, I still think Washington and New Hampshire. I mean, it's hard for me to believe. When I saw that poll yesterday from the, um, it's, it's a media outlet in, in New Hampshire. Uh, it's, it's, it's an old polling, St. Aslam, uh, Aslam, A-N-S-E-L-M. I mean, pronounce it however you'd like. Um, that's what the people in New Hampshire get for having weird, weird names. So it's Anselm, um, and it's been around forever, but they had bowled up plus one. Now, now, I don't know how reliable that polling is, but, but it seems that all the metrics are moving in favor of the Republicans. And if they pick up, as Barry said, 40-some-odd seats in the House, it's going to be because, I mean, I don't think they pick up 40 seats. I mean, I still got a bit, I mean, they're 212 now. I mean, I think they could pick up 35. That still gets them to, what, over 240, 246 or 7 I mean, I think that's a fairly safe number now. I mean, the RCP average projection, I think, is 31. I read that last night, 31. I mean, I think they're understating that. I think from 15 to 48 is kind of the range. I think they pick up 30. And you got to remember, Rev, I mean, you can't have the majority by three or four. I mean, the Democrats have had trouble getting things done in the House and Senate. Why? Because they have real slim majorities. Because you've got a guy running as a Republican who just isn't on board with America first. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartford. Well, but I want to be fair to Joe. Yeah, I mean, actually let's, about 20 I'm seconds. sorry, Joe, but sorry about we'll, we'll we'll get Joe to hold on, make sure he has a chance to express himself as he sees fit. Um, no, the the host got rambling and tried to speak about things he knows not quite as much Took about. Up all the time. But I mean, you asked me a question. That's yeah, your fault. So Joe, it's not really <laughs> my fault. Um, in the most recent poll. Kelly's up one in Arizona. That's a Fox News poll. If that poll's right, Masters wins by two. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone held on to a break. Ah, let's go there without delay. Joe in Hartsville. Hey, you're on. Yeah, good morning, guys. Hey, I don't mind waiting. You know, I told you I'm either blessed or cursed by being able to listen all four <laughs> hours. <laughs> I think I'm blessed, but that's the kind of job I've got. I think, you know, the amazing thing to me is all these, the media are surprised at the outcomes they've got, and the American people know what's going on. These people ran. They keep saying their policies are failing. Well, no, their policies are not failing. Their policies are doing exactly what they ran on. Joe Biden said he was going to shut down the fossil fuel industry. That's 75% of our economy. That's the, the wealth of this nation. He said he was going to do away with uh, bail. He was going to let half. He actually said to the ACLU that he was going to let half the prisoners out of prison. They were going to open up the borders and let their, all of this is their policies. And what the American people is finally realize is this is the best they can do under these policies. They're not failing. 
they're succeeding, so they're rejecting this out of hand. Now, it's time for the adults to take over and do what this country was founded on. And I keep going back to, you know, they keep saying separation of church and state. There is no separation of church and state. This country was founded on Judeo-Christian values. Our whole justice system is written out of Deuteronomy, setting up the judges, the, the, the justice being blind. It's not a respecter of persons, whether you're rich or poor or white or black or anything. All of that, the lower courts, the higher courts, are set up straight out of Deuteronomy. We're told not to be jealous or covet what our neighbor has, to work hard. You know, freedom is hard. Liberty is hard. But if they want to separate church and state, we've got to do away with the Constitution of South Carolina. Because in that Constitution, it says, we the people of the state of South Carolina in convention assembled, grateful to God for our liberties, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the preservation and perpetuation of the same, which is grateful to God for our liberty. So our whole Constitution is wrapped around the gratefulness to God for our liberties. And I contend with anyone, that's the only reason we're free, is because of our belief in our God. And it's time for people to stand up and say, social justice doesn't exist. Environmental justice doesn't exist. Justice exists. And tell these people that, you know, it's time for the adults to take over. It's nice to hear different opinions, but sometimes you got to say, that don't work. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Joe's talking about some of what the media told and some of what. I mean, the Democrats ran and are still running on a fairly extreme agenda. Now, now the media tries to complicate it, tries to um, masquerade it as something other than what it really is. I think the biggest contributor to why we're all of a sudden seeing a, 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 I don't want to say resurgence, but a surge within the ranks of Republican candidates, the media tried to tell you for a summer and a half that Bolduck and Lake and Masters and Walker and Vance and Oz and Zeldin were extreme weirdos. I mean, if you ever bump into Dr. Oz, you won't believe how strange he is. Or this, this Masters and, and, and Vance guy, they come from the teal world. And you know how strange those Silicon Valley billionaires are. And all of a sudden, the voters become um, familiar with Herschel Walker. I mean, he'd be different because Walker's a football hero in, in the state of Georgia. But the people in New Hampshire got to meet Bolduck. They were told beforehand, you ain't going to believe how weird this guy is, how extreme he is. And the voters say, that guy didn't seem real extreme or weird to me. And they bump into Blake Masters, and they say, he might have been a bit walkish, but he didn't seem like some, I mean, he wasn't the Antichrist. And the media has been telling those voters for a long time, you know, you nominate these, you know, extremists, and I mean, you're not going to believe what you could get yourself in, in into or confronted with. And all of a sudden, Masters wins Arizona, Lake wins Arizona, Laxalt wins Nevada, Walker wins Georgia, Bolduck wins in New Hampshire. And the voters begin becoming once again familiar 
and they're going like these guys aren't that strange i mean these ladies aren't that different in fact they're probably more like me than than the others and here's the problem with the democrats they've contaminated take ryan um in in uh, ohio ryan's a fairly moderate democrat i mean he really is but the party has forced him to vote on issues that I don't think he fundamentally agrees with. I don't think Ryan is a, a liberal. I mean, I think he's a fairly moderate, working-class, um, union-supporting Democrat. I mean, it'd be what you kind of identify with as a Democrat, kind of a um, uh, Rust Belt, pro-worker, pro-union, um, non-weirdo. I mean, if you asked Ryan, uh, Congressman Ryan, about transgenderism or gender mutilation, I mean, off the record, he'd probably say, no, man, that's crazy. I mean, you know, I, I grew up in rural Ohio. I don't, I don't go for all that. But the party's forced him. The funding mechanism in the party has forced Congressman Ryan to, to take votes that, that cause him great problems in Ohio. So, you know, when he says, I'm going to be an independent-minded Democrat, no, you're not. You voted for the Biden agenda 100% of the time. You can say you've offered up um, amendments to advantage natural gas as a bridge fuel. I'm going to try to talk a little bit about that last night, a bridge fuel from fossil fuel to green energy, you know, but, but nobody in your party wants any part of that. I mean, he's out of, he's out of kilter with his party and that's where the Democrats are today. So when the Democrats are perceived to be socialist, and I think that's what the, the public are really, I mean, if you ask me what the overriding debate in all of this is, it's the failure of socialism. Socialism doesn't work if Santa Claus can't come to town every day, and we know Santa Claus can't come to town every single day. So when we print trillions of dollars and everybody, I mean, manna from heaven, it's raining money and all this, I mean, stupidity abounds. But but sooner or later, people begin, ah, we can't do this forever. I mean, there is no way. And the only way socialism works is for Santa Claus to be allowed to come to town every single day with bags of money. That, that may be real, may be not real. So I think the, I mean, I think the overriding sentiment of this election is the failure of socialism. I mean, it, you know, the Democrats can say, we aren't socialists. Yes, you are. You absolutely are. I mean, you've, you've confessed that to some degree. I mean, you want everybody to finish the race at about the same time. Diversity, equality, inclusion. I mean, I told the story yesterday about the med students. You know, some get in, some don't. Um, and includes, I mean, it, to, to me, the word inclusion means, I'm sorry, white guy, not today. You know, I mean, when I hear inclusion or diversity or equality, I mean, all I hear is, sorry, white guy, not today. I mean, that's just the way I interpret that. I mean, I understand where it comes from. I understand what it means. I understand how we got there. I understand disenfranchisement and racism and, and bigotry. I, I mean, I, I'm well aware of all that. But, but to suggest that we can organize society via some government program, you know, ESG and DEI and all. I mean, those are socialist programs at their core. I mean, it's the government taking control of the economy. It's the government taking more and more control of our lives. And at some point in time, the media can't hoodwink you. But so far, the embarrassing part is we've allowed ourselves to get this far down the road. I mean, a disengaged public, an apathetic public. I mean, we, we've allowed ourselves to be um, believers that Democrats aren't socialists by and large. And they are. And I'm not saying every Democrat's a socialist. I think that's unfair. But the majority of Democrat proposals and agenda priorities are socialist in nature, period. And the media can't sell socialism but so well. Sooner or later, we the people say, that's too far. I, I just don't want any part of that. When Chuck Todd gets on Meet the Press and argues with Chris Sununu, so you mean to tell me that inflation matters more 
than what happened on January 6th and the fact that people deny an election. Yes, people are a lot more concerned, Chuck, about why the price of milk, gas, eggs, grits, donuts, whatever it is we consume. People are a lot more concerned about that than they are what happened on January 6th or whether Donald Trump's going to run for president or not. But, but once again, Reb, the media has been so successful for so long at shaping the narrative. We've decided what the final score is. We got to figure out a way to get the people there. And it was in both parties. That's why we had Dole. That's why we had Bush. That's why we had Romney. That's why we had McCain. That's who the media chose to, to basically oppose an, a, an ever-growing liberal agenda from the Democrats. And all of a sudden, in 16, the American people said, nope, I'm trying something different. And that goes back to my not believing this is a red wave, but rather the continuation of a political realignment. This is the next. That's what's got me so excited. I mean, I, I don't know what is a more important election than another. I mean, everybody says this is the most important election in our lifetime. To me, this is a very important election if you ascribe to the notions of America first, because this, to me, is the next phase of a political movement, political realignment, instead of simply a red Republican wave or a blue Democrat wave in the traditional sense. Can it sustain, is what I've always argued, can this movement be larger than a single force du jour called Donald Trump? It looks like it can. And if Masters wins, if Lake wins, if Walker wins, if Vance wins, if Oz wins, but that, that's, that's the proof we need. That's the validation that this is a very sustainable political movement and we're in the middle of a political realignment, whether the Masters of the Universe like it or not. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Uh, great start in the show. Uh, as always, you got a great show. Uh, I, I don't know about these uh, these people, but I, I am wondering, are they going to have a situation like in Michigan where like 103% of Detroit votes uh, Democrat or something like that? Or are they getting suitcases of votes hidden away under tables around the country? Uh, after what happened in the last election, I, I can't be just a little bit leery about it. And I think you're absolutely right about socialism. I mean, it's like uh, it, they're standing out there like muggers saying, come on down this dark alley here. And uh, Santa Claus at the end is at the end of this a alley. Well, we're, we're about to get mugged, but I think uh, we might uh, be able to get out of the, uh, out of it this time. But I don't know. It's, it looks close to me. Thank you. Appreciate that, Mike. 843-661-0937 is our number. We don't have another call. I thought we had a call. We, we don't, don't. But I have a question for you. Okay, I, I sure. just saw a headline on Fox News, and I think this plays into the coattail thing we talked about a few minutes ago. Okay. It said, a, a, I guess they're quoting a dim here. And their quote was that Hochul and Newsom are going to help lose house seats. Is that sort of a sure, the reverse, reverse coattail? Co that would be the drag effect. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you've got an unpopular governor and you're running as a, as a you know a, a candidate for Congress, yeah. I mean, absolutely, it depresses the vote. People aren't excited to go vote for you know that candidate. There are. I mean, here's an interesting story. Barack Obama is as good a vote-getter as there's ever been. I mean, forget that Biden got... See, that's kind of interesting to me. So you send Biden to Florida, 
where it doesn't matter. I mean, they, they, that's ceremonial. That's symbolic. I mean, Biden's in Florida. Um, I think uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz tried to get everybody excited about it. Nobody <laughs> was excited about it. And anyway, she gave some applause lines, yeah. and there were no applause. And they put the walker up long enough for for Biden to make his way to the stage, and he gives some remarks, and he says, "You know, um, the war in Iraq is the reason inflation is so high." And then he corrects and says, "No, it's the war in Ukraine. I know Iraq because that's where my son died." I mean, it, it's it's a little bit embarrassing. But here is the point I'd make to the Democrats: Why do you send Biden? To Florida, that doesn't matter. Obama to Ohio, Nevada, Arizona. I think he's going to Pennsylvania over the weekend to be with Fetterman. Didn't Biden get 15 million more votes than Obama? Supposedly. So why wouldn't you send your thoroughbred to those places? <laughs> I mean, why would you send Obama to those places when he got 15 million fewer votes? I mean, it's obvious Biden's the better vote getter, right? I mean, yeah. seriously, oh, I mean, help yeah. me understand. I mean, there's a Democrat listening. I mean, you, you argue that Biden got legitimately 15 million more votes than Biden, than Obama. Why are you sending a deadbeat like Obama to Pennsylvania, Nevada, Ohio, some of these real, I mean, where there are hotly contested elections, and you send Florida, you basically sentence Biden to go to Florida when Rubio's up 9 or 10, DeSantis is up 9 or 10. You, you're doing that because you know in your heart he didn't get 81 million votes. But that's really and truly, that's an illustration of Democrats not believing what happened in 2016 either. Because if they felt Biden got 15 million more votes than Obama, Obama would be in Florida in a symbolic ceremonial way. And Biden would be rallying the troops in Pennsylvania, rallying the troops in Arizona, rallying the troops in Nevada. But you know as good as we know. The guy never got 81 See, that million makes votes. too much sense well, when I mean, you explain that, it like you, that. You got to pay attention, Rev. I'm teaching you. You got to pay close, <laughs> close trying. attention. Let's go to the phone. Mark in Branchville listening to WTQS. Hello, Mark. Hey, man. Good morning, Ken. You know, great show as always. Um, this isn't quite off the, top, off the subject completely of um, the election, but you know what? People don't realize that, um, you know, if you look at the spread, if you go by a gas station, you, know, you look at the spread on the gas, the diesel fuel, um, it's the highest that it's ever been. Um, every bit, every dollar I make comes from diesel fuel. I got heavy equipment and trucks. So people don't understand the reason inflation is so high is the is really is the diesel fuel. Everything they call, everything they buy, takes diesel fuel to get it there. Whether it's either on a on a train, whether it's on a truck, whether it's on you know any, anything that you get will come through through diesel fuel. And they they've got this spread so far that it, it's it's way out of whack. They're worrying about the, the you know people driving a car. When the fact of the matter is, you know, a little bit of high gas will help you better. A little low diesel fuel will help you better than high gas. I promise you that. Amen. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that call. He said it as well as I could ever <laughs> say it. I normally try to take what a listener or caller says and reposition it. Don't need to reposition that. It does matter when it costs you 50 instead of 40 to fill your car or 70 instead of 50 to fill your car. That's a personal hit you take to your bank account. But when diesel is so out of whack, Everything we buy. I mean, the day of the $10 lunch is over, right? I mean, can we agree to that? Apparently. I mean, unless you're eating food glue. I mean, if you're eating some of the slop bucket food glue, and you probably get by with, but it's still 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. But but if you, I mean, and I don't eat a lot for lunch, but, but I've always been a $10 lunch kind of guy, and I never had any problem until now. And then 10 is all of a sudden 13 or 14. And, and then you got to, you know, I, I've told Rev the other day, and I should be ashamed to say this, but I got to be honest. I don't go to restaurants where you sit down and have to tip any longer for lunch. I just don't. 
because I don't want to pay thirteen to fourteen for the lunch and another four or five of the tip because I don't want to stiff the you know the the wait staff. I mean they're doing a good job. They're doing all they can. They've got to buy gas. They've got to buy groceries like everybody else does. So I've eaten lunch in my car or truck for the past six months more than I ever have in my life, and um, and that's not good for business. I mean that's just not good for the economy. But the caller is exactly right. What when you fill up your car truck with gas, your personal account takes a hit. But the hit is nowhere near as big as all the other consumables we have to purchase that have been shipped, transported uh, from point A to point B using and, diesel fuel. And by the way, we better hope we don't run out of diesel fuel. I keep hearing about these shortages. Well, I mean, you know, we've got energy policy. Remember this, Rev, when, when, and this goes back to what somebody said earlier. Uh, Joe, I think, the Democrats told you what they were going to do. Joe Biden stood on a, on a debate stage and said, and I quote, you know, I'm going to, we're not going to burn any fossil fuel by the year 2035. I mean, that Joe Biden, we, we, our, our, our economy will be run completely and totally by green energy by the year 2035. If you're an oil executive and you hear that, what do you do? You don't invest in the future. I mean, if the government's declared war on your business, why would you consider building a refinery or new infrastructure or increasing your refining capacity? You don't. I mean, the government just said that we're not going to burn fossil fuels past the year 2035. Well, there's a transition period, guys, and it's, it's insanity is what it is, but that's what you get when, when, when irresponsible politicians say reckless and careless things. Let's go to, the, uh, let's go to a break. I don't want to get too far behind. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. A lot of uncertainties, a lot of things we don't know. I mean, we're guessing, we're expecting, we're speculating. Uh, we think we know that the um, the wind is in the sail of the Republican candidates. I, I want to say this again. I said it earlier, and I, and I believe this. And I'm, I'm not saying I coined the phrase because I've heard other people say similar things. This is not a wave election. This is a realignment. If Walker wins in Georgia, Masters wins in Arizona, Vance wins in Ohio, Oz wins in Pennsylvania, Laxalt wins in Nevada, Lake wins in Arizona, let's say Bullduck does pull off the biggest surprise and wins in New Hampshire, that is not a wave. That is a realignment. I mean, something has happened. There's not some just, legs to America well, I mean, first. Yeah, is what it's, you, it's, not just, it's, it's not just the Republican and Democrat. It is the Republican within the Republican. It is this, you know, the establishment, America first dilemma or dynamic, however you want to look at it. Uh, yeah, if, if, the, if the Republicans win 80% of the elections I just named, I mean, that is the second phase of America first. And when I watched J.D. Vance last night, Rev, I mean, I really and truly thought I was watching kind of the intellectual underpinning, the intellectual grit that I think is necessary if we are, and I'm an America firster, if we are going to sustain um, the next phase of what Donald Trump ushered in in 2016. Republican Main Street Partnership CEO Sarah Chamberlain is with us. Sarah, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? So I don't know if you heard my dissertation or my, my yeah. argument, but um, you say what in relation to what I just said? I say you're right, 100%. It is a realignment, and it is a clear message to the Democrats. And I do think that we are going to pick up uh, the Senate seats you talked about. I thought J.D. Vance did a great job on Fox. Um, I, I, I heard you touch on that a little bit. Um, he, he was wonderful. I think he will win Ohio pretty easily when it comes down to it. I'm not a big believer in polls, so I happen to think he's up more than the polls are showing. Sarah, what do we do? 
of the Republicans who refuse to accept this new energy within. I mean, I'm talking about Mitch McConnell pulling funding from certain states and investing in other places. I mean, is that something that's still there? And obviously, politics is about addition. We need all Republicans on board if we're going to get a majority, hold a majority. But but what? how do we hash out this internal squabble that we're having? I think the uh, leaders in each side there's kind of two sides of the Republican Party. I think they need to sit down at a conference table and hash this out for the betterment of the Republican Party, but really for the betterment of this country. I mean, the Republicans clearly do a much better job running this country than Sleepy Joe does in the Democrats. What do you think some of the priorities need to be? Let's say things go as we hope, and it is a big day next Tuesday for the Republicans. We wake up Wednesday morning with a solid majority in the House, a a majority in the Senate. What are some of the uh, policy priorities that you think Republicans need to concentrate on? I think our first one should be energy. I mean, this is ridiculous. We're sitting here with with a great deal of resources. They're not being tapped because Joe Biden doesn't want to. He shut down um, the Keystone Pipeline. I mean, we need to tap our resources so we're not paying, you know, four dollars a gallon for gas, and so we can help our allies who are helping us, who are helping Ukraine and Russia has cut off. I mean, they're about to freeze, and we're sitting here on tons of resources that that Joe Biden and the Democrats won't touch. To me, that's our number one issue. Obviously, inflation is a huge issue as well. Um, But you got to start getting that oil out of the ground a little quicker, and then we start dealing with inflation. But if you can bring the gas prices down, you can hopefully start to bring inflation down. Sir, last question. What is Republican Main Street Partnership? What should we know about that organization? We are a group of conservative Republicans from around the country, House and Senate, well over 100, that want to get things done and want to move this country forward and uh, and want to defeat Democrats. Okay. Thank you very much for your time, Sarah. Have a great day. Okay. Thanks. Thank Bye-bye. you. So um, just kind of a, uh, when I see the word Main Street conservative, uh, I want to hear from someone who speaks on uh, their behalf. Alan Cookie Cutter. Um, let's go to the phone. <laughs> Here's Roger and Coward. Hey, Roger. <laughs> Good morning, fellas. Uh, ditto to what the lady just said. And I think the Republicans, when I read the polls, you know, you ask the polls, you ask a general question, like I was reading yesterday, uh, most folks think we're not doing anything about climate change, not doing enough. And you just ask a general question, folks are going to say, yeah, yeah, we need to do about climate change because the media has gotten most of the people convinced that, you know, we're all going to burn up in a few years. Um, they have successfully done that. But Republicans are not, in my view, answering that question enough with this. They should basically say, we don't know what's going to happen with the climate. We don't know one way or the other, just like you've said before. But they need to say, look what China, India, and Russia are doing. They're doing nothing about climate change. They may give lip service to it. They may even sign a piece of paper. They're not going to do anything. They're going to do what's best for their economy, sit back and laugh while Western Europe and the United States tank their own economy. That's the argument the Republicans have got to make against this nonsense because they've already, you know, most people are convinced, oh, yeah, 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 we've got to do this, that, and the other. Same thing, you know, when you ask most people about abortion. Yeah, they think people ought to be able to get an abortion. But when you get to the point of how long, how far along, that changes the argument again. And they need to make the argument also, the Republicans do, which they're not doing very well, 
when you say, oh, yeah, we need to do something about climate change, they need to answer and say, do you, under- do you understand what a Green Deal will do to you personally? And they need some facts and figures to tell people, when it comes to you, this is what a Green Deal will do to you. And I'll guarantee you, you'll get a different answer then. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate that. And I think that similar to that, I don't know if you saw this or not, but the Atlantic Magazine, which is one of the um, ah, the holy publications of liberalism in America today, it's held in high regard by liberals. And I've given them credit. I mean, there are some very talented, smart people at the Atlantic. I mean, they're as liberal as can be, but they're not stupid by any stretch of the imagination. And they move the meter. I mean, it would be a little bit like the National Review um, in days gone by. I mean, I don't think the National Review moves the meter like it did years ago, but it still matters. I mean, I check the National Review multiple times a day because I care what they have to say about where we are. The Atlantic would be similar to that. I mean, if you're a liberal, you care about what the Atlantic says. If you're a conservative radio show host, you care about what the Atlantic is talking about. Um, the Atlantic magazine has kind of become the standard bearer or the loudest voice for, um, what, what do they call it, uh pandemic amnesty you know we're sorry we made a mistake mea culpa um it's similar to that in climate so so we're asking the american people to sacrifice like they've never sacrificed before on something that may or may not be true it's got to be green and renewable energy fossil fuels are destroying the planet and if we don't limit the use of fossil fuel the co2 emits uh we're all going to burn you know, like we're going to burn to a crisp by the year 2055 or whatever. I mean, make up your data. I mean, they keep moving the number, but they've got a number out there somewhere. Well, I mean, we were told, I mean, imagine the complications of climate change. I mean, imagine the arrogance it takes for one man or woman to say, you know, I know what the temperature of the planet Earth is going to be uh, 100 years from now, and I know what we need to do to stop that from happening. I mean, that's, that's what these folks are arguing. I know what the temperature of the planet will be 100 years from now, and I know how to not allow that to happen. I mean, if you're that gullible, I'm probably not going to get through to you. But the Atlantic Magazine, the reason I'm bringing up this, the Atlantic Magazine has basically argued that, yeah, we got a lot of things wrong during the pandemic. I mean, we thought the vaccine worked. We thought it stopped the spread. We thought the kids needed to be um, at home instead of in school. We didn't think parents should be allowed to visit their, um, their excuse me, kids shouldn't be allowed to visit their parents in some of these senior homes. But can we just ask for a little forgiveness? I mean, it's obvious now. So, so they're basically doing a mea culpa. That they realize, I mean, the Fauci's of the world realize that they weren't as smart as they thought they were. So if we get that as wrong as we got it, why in the world would we forsake our energy policy in the name of something that might or might not be true 100 years from now? And to Roger's point, none of the other developed nations are participating. I'm going to see some of the emerging economies in particular. I mean, China will burn more coal this year than America has in the last 26 years. China's building about eight new coal generating plants this year. So they're not, you're right, Roger's right. They may say what you want them to hear. They may sign a document, but they're going to generate power from coal until they're not able to generate power from coal. Now, now once again, I'm not saying do as China does. But stop lying to the American people saying that if we sacrifice in the name of green and renewable energy and climate change and extreme weather, that, you know, we're going to be celebrated as saviors of the planet, that there's not that there's nothing we can do if China, India and some of the I'm arguing, let, let's say the experts are right. Let's say that 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 fo- the burning of fossil fuels is the imminent threat 
the, the cataclysmic event that could um, end the existence of mankind. I mean, that's kind of an apocalyptic view, but that's, I mean, there's some Democrats that hold that view. Al Gore has said things like that. John Kerry has said things like that. Now, they don't, they don't mean it, but they're being paid by people in the green energy field. So, you know, what, what matters if somebody getting paid a few million bucks to say I'm something that destroys average people's lives? But, but we need to forgive one another because I, I saw this. There's a professor at Brown University who had a lot to say about the reckless and careless nature of the deniers and the anti-vaxxers and, you know, the, the rambunctious Jeffersonians, such as yours truly, mm. who didn't listen to what the expert said um, we need to forgive one another for what we did and said what we did were in the dark about COVID. No, I mean, you weren't in the dark. You knew exactly what you were doing. I mean, you, you were, you were saddled up with tech companies, Facebook, Twitter, my, you know, uh, TikTok, Instagram, all these tech sites, uh, Google, uh, we, they censored the debate that was allowed to take place or not. Um, th- there was collusion to counter any, um, cross information. I mean, anybody like me that had any, anything um, negative to say about the the lockdown to the vaccine. I mean, we were censored. We were not allowed. Um, so the media platform, media in general, social media. I mean, they all were complicit in colluding with academia, with the medical profession. I'll say this with all due respect, and, and I mean this with the most respect imaginable, because I know it was a hard and complicated moment in your life. But the medical profession was significantly corrupted by the government during the pandemic. There's some doctors gutsy enough to say that. There's some health care providers gutsy enough to say that we were terribly misled by what we were told and what actually happened. And I understand being a doctor. I mean, there's a certain, um, there's a certain reasoning that has to exist when you go to work every day. You don't own the hospital. You don't own the, you know what I mean? You, you've got to exist in that ecosystem and you've got to figure out a way to um, not put your job at risk, not put your livelihood in jeopardy. But but I go back to the comment somebody told me, and you remember this, Rev, well, there was a doctor who texted me one day during the show when I was questioning the efficacy or the effectiveness of the vaccine. And he said, hey, man, you're getting out of your lane. I mean, you're a politician who hosts a radio show. You're getting out of your lane, to which I responded during the next break. You've got no idea how far in my lane you are. You have no idea as a physician how far in my lane you've allowed your profession to get. And now we're finding out, and the Atlantic Magazine is basically admitting, and it's hard for them to admit this, but they're admitting that the decisions we made were terrible. I mean, the pandemic era decisions that we made about lockdowns and school closures and and masking, um, basically punishing an entire class of people over and over and over again. Anybody who questioned that wisdom, anybody who questioned the efficacy of the vaccine, I mean, you were basically, um, you know, shut down. You were not allowed to have that discussion. I mean, there, there were penalties and punishments in relation to that. And, and, and those same people believe that they know what it takes to save the planet Earth? Really? We can be that stupid. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Tim and Florence. Good morning, Tim. What's up, guys? Hey, Tim. Hey, it's been a while since I called y'all, but I. Uh, Is this troublemaking, with- Tim? It's troublemaking. Okay, okay. We, we discussed that during the break. Is this Tim or is yeah. this troublemaking? It's been a long Tim? time. 
It's troublemaking, Tim, man. But okay. yeah, I uh, I was just giving a call with everything you said. You know, I recently was at my church and hearing uh, a discussion on the UN Agenda 2030, and um, you know where they're talking about having a basically a one world economy. And when you take a look at where we're headed, I mean, Ken, you talk about it all the time. They control us, you know, the media, how how they handle that. But now they're controlling like our land as well. And, you know, this this U.N. Agenda 2030 is supposed to have this one world economy, sustainability. You know, um, it'll cut out poverty. It'll cut out hunger. Right. But you take a look at what Biden's doing right now. And I, I look at it as they control our senses. So what you see, what you hear, what you taste. And with the eating part, it's funny how Biden is trying to control climate change by not allowing farmers to grow on land for certain amounts of time to help with climate change. I just think that's that's really weird. We want to help with, you know, all these plants that have burned down mysteriously, but yet, hey, farmers, I'm going to pay you to stop farming food. Just, just a little strange. And then now you see one of the largest landowners is China, where it's moving from thousands of acres to hundreds of thousands of acres within the U.S. That's a little odd. I'll take it off the air. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. Guys, Tim is a reasonable man. I mean, we've spoken with him several years. Tim is a reasonable man. Listen to what he just said. How unreasonable is that? I mean, the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and the Davos man. I mean, I never in a million years imagined when I got in politics at the age of 40 that I would be, um, <coughs> excuse me, that, that I would be that close to conspiracy theories that consistently Uh, as days go by. But I am. I'm always in conspiracy theory mode because nothing convinces me to not. And they keep coming true, by the way. And I go back to like, we we, we joke around with Alex Jones and, you know, some of his shenanigans. But the guy was right a lot. I mean, he was dead wrong on Sandy Hook and he'll be forever remembered. And that'll probably be his ruination. You know, this the Sandy Hook situation. And I don't defend that. You'd be a moron to defend that. But, but there's a lot of other things he said about Davos and the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and some of these transglobal and transnational organizations. Um, and I do believe that there's an attempt by a certain group of people far smaller than I ever imagined to control the activities of the world, to control our food production, our fuel production, to, to basically us uh, force us to bow to the altar of you know them controlling the, the means of productivity when it comes to things that we can't do without. I mean, I can't do without food. Can you? I can't do without fuel. Can you? I mean, I can do without going to the movie. I mean, I don't have to go see the Gamecocks play. I mean, I enjoy doing those things. I don't have to go to the beach. I enjoy doing those things. But there's certain things, and they've got no interest in controlling that. They want to control things that you need as a necessity of life. And that's not a conspiracy theory, guys. Tim's not a conspiracy theorist on steroids. I'm not. I mean, I hope you think I'm a practical, sane, reasonable man. I mean, I've got some pretty conservative views. And, and principles and values, but I'm no moron. I mean, I'm not out there. I didn't watch the Twilight Zone last night to get the content for this show, but you've got fair-minded average Americans believing things, and, and here's the difference. They're not ashamed to say these things any longer. I mean, I got to believe there was a day in Tim's life that he would have never publicly said what he just did, but he knows that there are a lot of other people who feel similar to he. And, and that's scary. I mean, that's spooky. And that's really my, not infatuation, but my support of America First. The America Firster says, look, let Ukraine 
say grace over Ukraine. I mean, I accept we're not isolationists, but we're America firsters. And we want to know what is in America's best interest. Producing our own food is in America's best interest. Consuming the food we produce is in America's best interest. Being a bit protectionist of our food supply is in America's best interest. I mean, we are, to some degree, guardians of the free world. I mean, I think God has kind of forced that upon us. And I do think we have an obligation to humanity in that regard. But, but I want to produce our own fuel and consume our own fuel. I want to produce our own food and, and consume our own uh, food or fuel. I'm sorry. But, but the United Nations, I mean, they would rather have it another way. The Davos man would rather have it another way. Power is toxic. And some of these oligarchs who have accumulated enormous amounts of wealth and, and political power, I mean, they, they believe that we are all. See, here's the crux of the matter. They genuinely believe that society is better if they get to organize it, if they get to build the social constructs of which we're obligated to treat our fellow man by. And, it, I mean, it, it's out there. I mean, it, you know, and, and once again, Tim is a reasonable man who was not ashamed to espouse some pretty radical beliefs and views from 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. But I think Americans are really beginning to wake up. And once again, this is a part of, I mean, that would be the next level, but this is a part of not a political red wave, but rather a political realignment. I think Americans are sensing that our sovereignty is at stake, our national identity is at stake. There's one party that seeks to preserve that and one party that would outsource every good of America. Take a break back in a minute. It has really not been a show about everything in recent time because we paid so much attention to the midterms and the elections. And uh, it'd be interesting. Rev and I have had a lot of conversations off the air about my take on this. Or, you know, you asked me a second ago about local politics. Does it matter about local politics? I still go back to the belief I have. If there's a hotly contested statewide election, that congressperson is going to be advantaged by being a de by being a Republican. In other words, if it's a lean D state, excuse me, a lean D congressional district in a state where Blake Masters or J.D. Vance or Dr. Oz or Herschel Walker are running, I think the Republican wins that. I mean, if he's trailing by a point or two or three, I think he wins that election. That's a flip. That's why I think we pick up between 30 and 35, maybe a little more than that. But I think 30 is a safe bet. 35 would probably be the medium and maybe 40 if you're swinging for the fence and hoping for the Ross Chastain Hail Mary <laughs> as he did Sunday. That's funny the, that that's a thing. The, well, I mean, it's, a, it's the ultimate Hail Mary, and um, he made it. Got <laughs> in the 14-4 race, F-14 playoff for the NASCAR championship. Let's go to the phone. Got a couple of guests. Uh, we do, and first uh, we're going to go to Russell Fry, who's on hold for us in just a few minutes, but Mike Page, uh, chairman of the Florence County GOP, joins us first. Hey, Mike. <laughs> Hey, Dave, Ken, I appreciate that. Uh, Russell, I'm, what I'm going to talk about real quick is that our governor will be in Florence tomorrow at 9 a.m. at Venus Restaurants. And uh, I would like to encourage y'all to come out and support your governor, sit there and talk to him. And if I understand correctly, Russell will be with us tomorrow also. But it's tomorrow, 9 o'clock at Venus. I'd love for y'all to come out and support the governor. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Good luck to your crowd. Thank you for the hard work you do. On behalf of the GOP, now, I don't know if I like 9 o'clock people not listening to the radio. <laughs> Let's delay this until 10 o'clock when people get their, well, there you go. their, their proper education. <laughs> because obviously people's lives revolve around this show, Sure right? they do. I mean, they're, they're, Rev, you don't understand, but there are millions who hang on every word that you and I utter. 
And you and said it, that with a straight face. It's, it's, it's with a certain level of seriousness that I take this, mm. this, this very worthwhile endeavor. We better start trying this. That I disguise as a job. Uh, Russell Fry is with us. Russell is the Republican nominee in the 7th Congressional District, the Trump-endorsed Republican nominee in the 7th Congressional District. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. We are six days away. Six days away from a, um, not a Republican red wave, but rather, Russell, what does it feel like to be a part of a political realignment? Because that's kind of the terminology I've coined. I do believe that we're realigning American politics, and in particular the Republican Party. We've had a squabble within, and, and you were the benefactor of having someone who was very instrumental in that movement within endorse your campaign. But would you agree right. that this is a red wave or, or rather, somewhat I refer to as a political realignment. I think, it, yes, it's certainly a red wave, and a political realignment uh, remains to be seen. But what I'm seeing is, is evidence of that, right, where you've got great candidates, you've got strong candidates running on the border on, in border districts that have never elected a Republican, and they're winning. I mean, it's amazing to me when you, when you say what you're going to do and you speak about it, and you're, you don't worry about the media or, or whatever, and you talk about the issues that the people care about, you win. What's amazing, it's, it's kind of uh, remarkable. I mean, politicians should have figured this out a long time ago, but it's, uh, it's really cool to see. And, and being in, I've been, had the fortune to campaign in some of these swing districts. And there's a great field of candidates running for the House of Representatives. I mean, you know, it's the most diverse, it's got the most female, it's got the most Hispanics, it's got the most African-Americans ever running uh, under the Republican banner in different in different states, and it's awesome to see. This Ru- is the future of our party. But, Russell, we can't take anything for granted. I mean, crazy things happen. Crazy things have happened in American politics. Um, what are you doing to make sure you didn't leave an I undotted or a T uncrossed? Listen, we're everywhere. I mean, you know, we were at the, the Florence football game last Friday, you know, shaking hands, reminding people we're door knocking. You know, here in the 7th District, We've made more phone calls than anywhere else in the state. We've made more voter contacts at the doors than anywhere else in the state. So we're putting it all out on the field. I think we've got to. And that's just who I am as, a, as from a grassroots candidate is you've got to get in the field. You've got to talk to people. Even if you think you're in a safe seat, guess what? You don't win until the clock strikes 7 o'clock on Tuesday. Um, so every single vote, every single voter contact that you can make, you got to go do it. And so – We've been everywhere. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, what I hate here, and Ken, you've heard this too. When you, when you've run, I'm sure. Oh, you've got this. Well, guess what? It's not tomorrow's not guaranteed. Our success is not guaranteed, and and we can't just show up to a, a football game on game day and expect to win. We got to put in the time now. Um, so, it's been really good though. I, I love going out and meeting people and talking to people and listening to them, and they're they're frustrated. Um, they're incredibly frustrated. And they're, and they're fearful. They're fearful about the direction of this country. Um, but the one consistent theme that goes across the board is they're, look, they're pointing to Joe Biden and the congressional Democrats and going, this is their fault. This is on them. Uh, and it's, I think it's a good thing to see. I think we can realign uh, our party and we can realign the direction of our country on next Tuesday. Russell, last question. If someone wants to help, I mean, we're near the end, but, but you know, we're, we're not there yet. There, there's still things people can do and, and ways to help. If someone wants to find out more about your campaign, you personally be a part of making sure we don't take any chances. What can they do? Listen, check out our website, russellfrysc.com. Follow us on social media. 
Um, spread the word, you know, pull people out, make sure that they vote, remind them to vote. Just because the polls show a red wave doesn't mean that the red wave happens. We don't get there if we don't show up to vote. So make sure you put in the time now, early vote Monday through or t- today through Saturday, uh, and then vote on Election Day if you want to. But put in the time now and get your friends and family out, too. Russell, we wish you the best, my man. I appreciate all the hard work you've done. It's been a long, arduous journey, but we're almost there. um, And I think we're going to have some good news. But once again, folks, don't take it for granted. I mean, don't believe that this is just going to happen without your support, without your hard work. Russell's out there beating the bushes, you know, trying to inspire people to make sure we go to the poll Tuesday. Let's help him get across the finish line. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, guys. Have a good morning. Do the same. 843-661-0937. It's easy to wake up and do this right now. I mean, it really and truly is. And I'm not normally an optimistic soul. (laughs) You don't say. No, I mean, I'm normally the guy that thinks everything is going to fall apart right before our very eyes. There's just too much information out there that leads me to believe this is going to be a really good day if you're a Republican running for office in, in any of the several in said states. And uh, we're talking about coattails and well, how I want to ask a- you how how coattails and we've talked about you know nationally in the statewide races, but let's boil it down to local races. I mean, do you think there are coattails that make their way down to county and city races? Of course, yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, I'll give an example. Um, Joey McMillan, my friend and candidate for um, Florence City Council, is in a hotly contested race, and it's going to be a hard race for a Republican to win. Um, but every dollar Joe Cunningham spends convinces Republican voters that Henry could have a a bigger battle than than he needs to. So in the weirdest way imaginable, hmm, that's interesting. The money Cunningham is spending may increase the likelihood that Joey McMillan, a Republican, gets elected to Florence City Council because it creates the uh, the belief that this guy is a good candidate, well funded. Um, is trying to, I mean, if you're investing money in a campaign, you think you can win. So Cunningham spending a lot of money advertising on television, I think increases the likelihood that somebody like Joey McMillan wins in the Florence City Council race. And that, you're right, that, that's kind of an interesting and weird phenomenon, but it happens because people, when people, if people don't see Cunningham, if Republican voters don't see Cunningham, there's nothing to see here. I mean, it's a given that Henry's going to be the governor. All of a sudden, people see Jody Cunningham, and they see him again and again and again and again. They say, okay, Henry has a race. I mean, this guy's spending money. That This guy's pretty sharp. I mean, this guy's kind of a young, uh, attractive candidate. I got to go make sure Henry gets across the finish line. Well, when you're there, you're going to vote for the other Republicans. I mean, if it's worth your time going to vote, you're going to vote for the other Republicans. So, so yes, I mean, there, there are coattails, and there are a lot of, um, I don't know, Reb, that there's a lot of um, innards. <laughs> to American to American <laughs> politics that are hard to understand at times. Um, you know, one of the interesting parts of American politics is who can raise a lot of money and who can't. Uh, we are talking a second ago about Cunningham spending money on television, you know, and I think it gives the, I mean, I think it creates the belief that Henry has a, a race on his hands. Now, I think Henry does have a race on his hands. And if the macros weren't the same, it may be closer. But this is a very favorable environment for Republicans seeking public office, Henry will ride that wave. I mean, this is a plus eight state anyway, maybe plus 10, uh, but it could be plus 12 or 13 when all said and done with the uh, with the macros in the election. But I was thinking about, you know, um, the ability candidates have to raise money. 
and I went back and looked at some of the most expensive Senate races and and gubernatorial races and and uh, you know where the money's being spent. You got to give two people credit, and that's um Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke. Okay, I mean they, they they're apparently I mean they they when if they, if it doesn't work out in politics. They need to go into selling something. I don't know what it is, but they need to go into selling something they've never led in a single poll, and they've raised about $175 million between. Basically selling crap. Uh, I, <laughs> selling a pipe dream. I mean, really and truly. I mean, Abrams has raised about $90 million, and I think um, Beto's raised about 70-some-odd million dollars. And I think it's 175-ish million dollars they've wow. raised between them, and they've never led in a poll. So how do you, as Beto, how do you call a Democrat donor and say, you know, I'm down nine in the poll, but I sure would love to have 3,500 bucks, or I'm down 10 in the poll, you know, I'm running in red state Texas. I mean, it, it, it amazes me. Now, now, the majority of this money in, in Abrams and, uh, and Beto are celebrity money. So it's not real smart. I mean, it's not like the guy that ran the business <laughs> You know, you know what I mean? I mean, this person happened to look a certain way or have a certain quality or characteristic and led them down the road of um, personal fame, wealth, and fortune. Um, it's kind of interesting. If you run a business and make it, it's one thing. If you stumble on, you know, stardom in, in Hollywood, it would be another. I'm not saying, I mean, every dollar is equal. I mean, if somebody's got $100 million running a business, they've got $100 million. Somebody made $100 million being in movies, they still made $100 million. But I think it's hard to convince a business guy or business lady to invest in a campaign that has absolutely no chance to win. And Beto's never had any chance to beat um, Governor Abbott in, in uh, Florida, but he still convinced the Democrats to, you know, contribute about 70, $75 million of hard-earned money to a campaign. And it's almost like that there's, this, I guess it's a little bit like being a Gamecock fan. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's a little bit like this blind loyalty that you have. You know, you never know when you might catch light to get a bottle. Uh, you might beat Kentucky and Texas A&M back to back. We need another buck or two or three or four. We got to have this um, this indoor practice facility, or we're going to be mediocre in football. Got to have this football operations building. Got to have these stadium enhancements. So the Gamecock Nation continues to pony up, ante up. Eh, you know, a little bit better than mediocre, but not much. Um, and I just think the Democrat asking for money in Texas is asking smart people who have made a lot of money to make a bad investment. And I guess if you're, you know, if you're a believer, if you're a true believer in whatever it is you believe in, um, I mean, if you think Republicans are evil and you think Republicans are, you know, abortion purist and they're going to force women to have abortions in the back alleys and, you know, they're going to throw, as Sean Hannity says, throw grandma off the cliff, I guess there's some um, compulsion you have to contribute to Democrats. I just don't understand the logic behind Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke convincing Democrat donors to contribute $175 million to two campaigns who, as of today, have 0% chance of winning. Zero. I mean, there is no way in the world that Abrams beats Kemp. I mean, the question now is, where does she go from here? Uh, where does Beto go from here? Because, once again, the media's told us they are stars, right? I mean, these are the oh, superstars yeah. of the— um, of the Stacey Abrams would have been much smarter to move somewhere and try to be a senator. Beto would have been much smarter to move somewhere. Move to Illinois, Beto. I mean, take a chance of getting shot in Chicago and, and you know, go, go, go there. Blue State. Yeah, but go, go somewhere you've got a chance. Then you ask your rich liberal donors to give you money. But, but you know, the, the liberal Democrat donor 
who gives money to Beto running in Texas, maybe they bought into the media narrative. I mean, maybe, maybe those people, I mean, the, the polling shows that liberals are more trusting of the media um, because they tell them what they want to hear. Affirmation is uh, kind of universal. So maybe some of these smart Democrat donors read the poll or listened to the media and said, hey, Beto's got a chance this time. I mean, it's going to be real close in Texas. I mean, remember six years ago, we were told that once Texas fell, the Republican Party would cease to exist. I mean, that was six years ago. I mean, I'll never forget. I mean, there was an article in the New York Times. The the Republican Party will cease to exist the day Texas falls. And now we're going to reelect a governor in Texas by probably seven or eight points. It looks like more Hispanics are voting Republican than any time in American history. African-Americans are probably going to vote for more Republicans than any time in American history. Uh, the most diverse slate of candidates the Republican Party has ever had in American history. More females, more African-Americans, more Hispanics are running for office with an R beside their name than ever before. And I think it was Mark Twain, you know, reports of my demise were greatly exaggerated or quite premature or something to that effect. What was it? I mean, the, um, the reports of my demise were, anyway, Twain said a lot of things that are memorable. Apparently that isn't so memorable, <laughs> or, I, or I would remember it. Uh, reports of my demise were greatly exaggerated, exaggerated, have been greatly exaggerated. Something to that effect is what Mark Twain said. Um, the, you look at the it reports up? of my death are greatly exaggerated. Is Well, now I'm reading the story is a, Somebody is reported, a misquote. Well, I mean, but, but Twain yeah. gets credited with saying something. It was based on a letter Twain sent to a newspaper reporter who asked about Twain about rumors he was dying. Good okay. deal. Good deal. That's the that's the uh, Google on that. <laughs> I've got a um, but uh, and I want to say this, and then we'll take our um. No, we won't take a break here. Yeah, we will take a break. Take a break. I want to say this. I mean, everything you've heard the old saying, "crap runs downhill." I mean, the plumbers know that. You know, don't ever take the plug out of the bottom. I mean, if the if the, if the commode stopped upstairs, don't 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 take the clean out out of the bottom um, because <laughs> crap runs downhill. And um, I mean, I've seen that in the first person, not with me, with a buddy of mine. Uh, I told him, I said, hey, man, I'd be careful with that plug. And then it was a, bloop, I mean, a big old burp. And it wasn't a burp, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, he had reading glasses on. I had toilet paper and all kind of other feces. This, this went down real quick. <laughs> it went down here real quick. Um, and he didn't enjoy it so much. I did. I, mean, I, I couldn't say, hey, funny, man. Uh, anyway, um, if you really think about the what caused all of this energy, I mean, I could argue very easily the pandemic. I mean, 90% of Americans believed what the government told them to begin with. And that number has steadily declined. Why is it steadily declined? Because we found out the government lied. Well, at least they got it wrong. Well, let's be fair to the government. At least they got it wrong. The lockdowns, the shutdowns, the colluding between media, big tech, the government, academia, in suggesting they knew exactly what was going to happen. I mean, there's still a 1%. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a virus that 99% of people who got it survived. Um, I mean, obviously, there were some deaths, and it's sad and tragic. But, but we were told to begin with that, you know, the, um, this is a deadly virus, and we got to do all these things. And now everybody's asking for amnesty. The educators are asking for amnesty. The government officials asking for amnesty. The Atlantic Magazine is pushing this amnesty narrative. And I think the American public are now pretty aware of how bad the lie was, how complicit some of the organizational structures were in, um, in not allowing people like me to say, man, I don't know about this vaccine. I, mean, I don't know should, about these lockdowns. Should officials 
be on the hook and answer for some what of I mean, the things that they get, did if, and said? Well, I mean, if we if there was blatant disregard for fact, yes. I mean, if they were doing their dead level best in the throes of the moment to make a conscientious decision in the best interest of the American public, no. I mean, if they got it wrong, there's nothing bad about getting it wrong, right? Well, let me say this. There's nothing illegal. I mean, there's a lot bad about getting it wrong. There's nothing yeah, illegal nothing, nothing about getting malicious. it wrong. But, but, but if it was nefarious or malicious or with intent, you better believe it. And that's why we need Republicans in charge, because they've let it be known, Rand Paul in particular. Rand Paul says that if given the opportunity as a member of the majority, I'm going to request a, uh, an investigation, and we're going to get to the bottom of the lockdowns, the shutdowns, the, uh, the censorship, you know, why we were told things that just were absolutely false. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few. Right, we're going to take a respite from politics for just a second. We talked a lot about the midterms. We talked with congressional candidates and county chairmen. And, you know, we got a governor coming to town tomorrow. There are a lot of things that are hot and center or front and center and hot button items when it comes to American politics. But we're going to take a respite. Freehold gives me this list of potential guests every morning. And I found this to be very interesting from my perspective. Um, it's not about politics, but it's the way politicians talk. It's not about business, but it's the way business people talk. Um, a mental health advocate and resilience expert who is passionate about teaching people how to bounce back from adversity wrote a book, Greater Fortune, Essential Lessons for the Entrepreneur Who Bought the Company that Fired Her. Dr. Marie Cosgrove is with us. Dr. Cosgrove, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm honored to be here with you. We are honored to have you. So I'm, I'm going to be about as... Um, as rural as I can be when I explain my interest in this topic, what makes me want to cuss and why do I feel so cuss. good after I do? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, kind of like, like music, you know, when you hear something and it really touches, you know, the emotions, so it's a, it's a emotional response. You know, if, if people use profanity every day, I think it would lose its, its effectiveness. So that's basically what it lends itself to. And so they've done studies like, for example, putting your hand in cold, cold water and try to ease the pain when you curse, it helps ease the pain, I mean. So um, not necessarily that using profanity towards others is a good thing because that's never a good thing. That's just disrespectful. But, you know, I've done it where I hurt myself and, you, you know, a word comes out, right? So... That's basically what happens with we go into a fight flight response mode in our bodies. And this is scientifically proven. I mean, it's not just something that we say at a bar and argue about or a ball game. And I mean, th th there is some science behind the notion that when you express yourself uh, with profanity, the power of swearing, I guess, um, it does make you feel better. Yes, it does. In certain situations, you know, because they've also done studies where, you know, laboratory-based experiments show that there's also cognitive effects. So not only that, it can also interfere with cognitive processing, means that swearing can sometimes get in the way of thinking. So it really depends on how it's used. So it's not like, oh, swearing is really good. Let's just start cursing at everybody, right? No, it's not, not like that. It's um, basically this emotional response that happens when you do curse and um again it's it's in the way um communication style so 
not necessarily communicating with someone by using profanity because you're angry at them and just cursing them out, but basically um, in certain situations, you know, when you're um, when you're stressed out and you're by yourself and you're like, oh, you know, and that word comes out, right? So there's different, a different way of using it, I suppose. So are companies developing plans or programs that allow these employees that they want to be as productive as possible, and if you're able to exert yourself or relieve yourself of some of that anxiety, in other words, are, are companies really beginning to consider this as an alternative? In other words, have a, a designated place where someone can go and, and relieve themselves <laughs> of that pressure or anxiety? You know, they actually have created rooms like that where you can actually throw plates and you can break toasters and stuff. But studies show that that actually made people more angry. Um, so, you know, because it, you're, you're impacting your, nerv- your autonomic nervous system. So you're creating an autonomic response, which it kind of creates a habit. So what's more effective are companies that actually have gyms in their, uh, you know, in their facilities or offering employees, you know, free exercise, you know, a membership at a club or something because exercise actually produces hormones. For example, serotonin, that's like the happy hormone that, you know, brings you happiness and joy. So that's a, a better way of relieving that stress. Like go punch a punching bag, you know, that tends to be more effective. Interesting. Dr. Grosgrove, thank you for your time. Have a great day, ma'am. You too. Thank you. That's just kind of an interesting perspective. Um, <laughs> you do a segment on cussing on the radio. Mean, it's, it's, it's swear, the power of swearing <laughs> is what the uh, the title of the um, the issue was. I mean, they have these these headlines and subtitles. So it said the power of swearing. And, and it talked about it being cathartic. I mean, it, it really makes you feel better when you, when you say certain words. I'll tell you this. If you watch YouTube as much as I do, and I like to watch some of these pranks. I mean, I, I love to watch pranks. Now I know a lot of those are staged, but I've, I've kind of, I mean, I've watched them enough now to know kind of the ones that are staged, the ones that are questionable, and the ones that aren't. There, there's a certain word that people say every time they feel a certain, I don't know, emotion. I mean, it's, 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 it's crap. You know, it's not crap, but it's, a, um, it's an iteration <laughs> of crap. And it's so interesting to me when, I mean, it, it's like over and when something happens, that person says, crap, or, you know, watch this crap. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I, I, I have no idea. What, what, what about us, you know, so, so easily gets us there. I mean, it's, it's foul language. I mean, my mama called it a foul mouth. Wash your mouth out with soap. I mean, with soap. My mom was a Proverbs lady. I grew up in a Baptist church. Cussing was not allowed around her. But when I got in my business life, and the next thing you know, I'm with um, I mean, I'm with, with good old boys building truck beds, and I'm dealing with car dealers and truck dealers, and the next page of my life goes to politicians. I mean, it was a language very familiar. And some just, <laughs> I mean, some were amazing at it. I mean, you're talking about songwriters and singers. I mean, there were certain people in my life that could cuss in a way that you just like. I mean, I had somebody tell me one day, I would smoke a cigarette if I could look that cool doing it. You know what I mean? James Dean. I mean, I, I would do that if I could look that cool doing it. There were a couple of elderly men in my life. When they cussed, it was like a Dylan song. I mean, it's like a Beatles song. It was like, <laughs> it was man. Art. Yeah, it was art. Oh, yeah, it was, it was absolute art. I mean, it, the, the delivery, the cadence, you know, the, the, the way they said it. I mean, it was just like, I mean, I'm intrigued. I'm like, entranced. I want to be like that. I mean, I want to be able to say damn that way or, you know, or, or whatever the other word was. And um, look, I know we shouldn't speak that way. 
And I know we certainly shouldn't speak to our neighbor or fellow man in that regard, but, but there is something therapeutic and cathartic about saying certain words in a certain way at a certain time that they just kind of help you make feel better. I'll say this, Rev, as someone who ran a business and had a bunch of good old boys kind of answering to me, um, there were days I needed to get my point across, <laughs> and I didn't think I could get it across any other way, and I'm not sure that I'm wrong. I mean, in all honesty, had I sat them down and spoken as a teacher would speak to a kid trying to instill discipline, I just don't think it works. I think the way I spoke to those people was the way they expected to be spoken to and then almost the way I, it was not demeaning and it's not belittling by any stretch. It's just, I've got to really explain my point of view. I've got to get my, my point across loudly and clearly. And the only way I can do it is this way. I'll never forget my dad verbally undress someone in our business in front of a big crowd. And I, I was old enough to not challenge my dad, but try to understand why'd you do that? And I go to my dad and I said, Hey, I, you shouldn't do that in front of all those people. You can't, you can't cuss at someone like that. And my father was not bothered by that. He said, uh, he's the only one I can do that to. I mean, he knew the person. That guy had been in the business like 15 years. And my dad said, because in essence, I said, you don't need to talk to people that way. And he's like, you're right, I don't. But to him, I do. I mean, he's, he's, he's one of those guys that he's not going to get it any other way. And you just learn those personalities. I'm not defending it. But it is a practical reality of um of business, politics, and life in general. And because I know you listen to it, what did... What did uh, um, Chase say as Ross Chastain went flying around him on the track? What did he say? No, you you say it. Okay. My, 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 my good um, Because we listen to so, it. So Ross Chastain does the, the ultimate Hail Mary in the race. He right. just gets on the wall, Everybody's never slows down, it. goes around every car on the track. And, I mean, he's going 60, 70 miles an hour faster than any car on the track with this the ultimate Hail Mary. So Rev and I watched the video yesterday from Chase Elliott's car, and they're doing the uh, broadcast. So Chase's spotter says um, – you know, we're in or something to that effect. And Chase says, as he sees, as he's Ross's car flying by, he's like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> that there's just something about us that we've got to include a pro a word of profanity. And, and once again, I mean, there's a difference in nasty and vulgar talk. You know, I mean, some of those things just leave unsaid. I mean, taking the Lord's name in vain and some of the, I mean, no, I just stop with that. But, but there's some uh, Bobby Cox. In the Braves dugout, right? <laughs> dugout. Oh, talk, that's right? dugout talk. That's not really cussing. That's dugout talk. <laughs> Football coaches. That's not really cussing. That's um. That's locker room talk. Let's go to the phone. Ashley in Poston's corner. Hi, Ashley. <laughs> Good morning, guys. Hey, look, I was raised up on a farm. I worked there from time I was seven. I can cuss in Spanish and English. <laughs> so, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, but, but going going back to our uh, our uh, down ballot discussion we were having. I think that I think that when 2020, when the lockdowns happened and everything happened, I I feel like people finally woke up, and you see it now. In you can't lie, but so much you can't honestly look at people and say there's no crime. You can't honestly look at people and say we're not teaching CRT in school. We're not trying to put men in girls' bathrooms. We're we're the the economy's fine. Stupid. I think they finally, the light bulb finally went off, and I think it's going to be in Democrats and Republicans. I think you're going to see a strong block of the Democrats actually vote against their party and independents. I mean, you take Lisa Ellis, for instance, who's running against uh, Weaver. Uh, she had a Facebook post on there a couple of days ago uh, where she said that she's a fusion candidate, neither Democrat nor Republican. And in the comments, 
old boys call her out, that's crap. That's bull crap. Here's what you were for. You were for lockdowns. You were for transgenders. You were for CRT, et cetera, et cetera. If the mayor of Florence ran this year, ran this year, and said there is not a crime problem in Florence, she would not be the mayor this year. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. That's kind of an interesting observation. I've made that same observation about, you know, do you believe what the media tells you or do you believe your checkbook? I mean, when you go somewhere and eat and it used to cost you eight bucks and now it's 13. When you feel less safe in your home or neighborhood or school or business, um, I mean, it doesn't matter what the media says. When those realities become a part of your daily lives and existence, I mean, and, and that's where we are. The media still tried, Chuck Todd tried Sunday to convince Chris Sununu that voters are going to vote based on the supposed insurrection of January 6th and what Donald Trump may or may not have had at Mar-a-Lago. I have nobody in my world that gives a rat's rear end. See, I cleaned it up. A rat's <laughs> rear end about what happened January 6th or in Mar-a-Lago. I mean, they, they would discuss it with you. They would say, ah, it's not insurrection. I'd be probably unfortunate. Uh, Trump probably should have had some of those things down at Mar-a-Lago, but, but I ain't basing my vote on that. I mean, rest assured, have you tried to carry your family out to dinner lately? Have you filled your car or truck up with gas lately? Have you tried to go to a, a you know, a Walmart and buy, you know, a, a, a laptop lately? I mean, the, the, the cost of living is exponentially high than it was prior to the Democrats being in charge. And, and whether we know it or not, we're still going back to the pandemic. Because the pandemic is when big government engaged at a level they never have in human history. And we're dealing with inflation. Why? Because we printed trillions of dollars and we injected that liquidity into the economy, led to inflationary pressures. Uh, supply chain, we, we prohibited production, increased the supply. We basically did basic universal income, right? I mean, that's kind of sort of, I mean, we can call it whatever we want to, but the enhanced unemployment benefit what was basically universal income, the, 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 you know, the one that Andrew Yang talked a lot about and some of the others advocate for. It just does not work, guys, unless Santa Claus can come to town every single night. We know that's not true. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. You got about three minutes before we take our next break, top of the hour. We try to have a long segment, and we punish you by, or we reward you by having a long break. I mean, we try to do, there's kind of two styles we could use here. And Rev and Freehold and I, discuss internally what is the best strategy we could do six or seven minute segments spread the breaks out or we could do longer segments and back the breaks up and i mean we're gone for a longer period of time and i get that you miss us or maybe not but um we hope <laughs> we you hope. miss us we hope you miss us um but when we do that we're able to have longer more extended conversations about the topics we're discussing and the last thing i want to do is take a break and force you to hold you know, and take another break and force it whole. So what we've done, and I don't know, that, I mean, maybe we could poll our audience. I mean, do you like it better when we do shorter segments and spread the breaks out or when we back the breaks up? And Rev can explain this better. We have a last break at the end of the hour and another break at the top of the hour. And what we've tried to do is make the segments longer. We're gone longer, no question about it. But, but we have more time to discuss the issues of the day during those longer segments. And once again, there's no right or wrong way. Um, there's kind of a, I don't know, belief in radio. The longer you're gone, uh, the more likely someone is to turn the station. And we're concerned about That's that. 
Um, so, so if you hear us every now and then, we'll come back and say, Hey, we got to take another break. We'll be back. I mean, but we try to give you, there's only so much airtime we can do. I mean, this isn't satellite radio, this terrestrial radio is still, you know, depends on advertisers to keep us profitable and on the air in business. Um, and I, I struggle with what is the best way, um, Rev talks about templates and formatics and all this other sort of stuff. And we discuss when we are supposed to take the breaks based on theory and how we set it up. And then we, but then the, we, the, the we, content, they do float. Sure. And, I mean, and, we can, and there's a couple of callers backed up and they're talking about interesting things. And next thing you know, we've gone, instead of nine minutes, we've gone 14 minutes. Well, we got to make that up somewhere uh, down the road. And, and I am lousy at hitting the mark. I mean, I, I'll take sole responsibility for that. I mean, these guys are much better than I am. We're keeping the train running on time um but but once again i just like the fact that we have these interactions and when we're having interesting interactions i don't care when the break is supposed to be um we, we take it kind of when when i shut up i do want to say this uh we got about a minute and a half here um there was an interview i found online i'm a, I'm a youtube junkie there was an interview i found online most of you have heard of um pierce morgan most of you have heard of jordan peterson there's an interview that morgan and peterson do talking about Donald Trump. It's about 12 minutes long, and it's probably as accurate and as fair as two reasonable people I've ever heard. Neither of these guys are political hacks. I mean, Morgan's got a weird stance on guns, but but he's, you know, he's not a, I mean, he, he'll, he'll challenge the Democrats on some of this socialism and European form of government. I mean, Jordan Peterson is a clinician. I mean, he's a smart man, very educated man, um, has a lot to say about a lot of things and a large audience and listens to what he has to say. But they had not necessarily a debate, but a conversation about Donald Trump. And it's so interesting. One person knows Trump personally. The other forms a professional opinion from afar. But once again, the only thing we've asked is give the guy a fair shake. I mean, if you're a Trumpster, if you kind of like the guy's president, just give him a fair shake. I mean, he's not perfect. Nobody says he is. I mean, we understand some of the human frailty and, and flaws of Donald Trump probably better than you think we do. That's the problem in America. They believe the Trump voter loves Trump. <laughs> we love him as president. But I want to come back at the top of the hour and play Pierce Morgan and uh, Jordan Peterson. Back in a minute. Well, speaking of disagreeable yeah. people, let's talk about Donald Trump. Mm. Now, you've, you've known Trump for a very long time. And you worked with him. Now, did you meet him for Celebrity Apprentice? Is that what? And what was that like? And tell me, tell me about Mr. Trump, and let me ask you some questions, if yeah. you would. So, so you have a very lengthy sure. uh, experience with him. Mm. So I, I met him first on America's Got Talent. He appeared as a guest star, I think, introducing one of the shows, and I met him briefly backstage, and. He was intrigued by me because he knew that Rupert Murdoch, who was somebody he greatly admired, had made me the youngest uh, newspaper editor for 50 years. So he knew about that part of my background, and that was all he was interested in, really. It was like, oh, so Rupert, you're one of Rupert's guys, right? So that's how it, we had a sort of immediate early connection. Then I entered Celebrity Apprentice, which he was obviously the host of. And it was a pretty fascinating experience looking back because night after night, I ended up winning the show pretty much by behaving how I thought Trump would want me to behave. So I read The Art of the Deal, his book, about four times before I went out there and just played it tough and hard and to win, which I knew would be all traits he would find impossible to say were not good things. Um, to the degree, actually, that when I won, 
Uh, his, his last words were, Piers, you're arrogant, you're obnoxious, you're possibly evil, but you beat the hell out of everybody. You're my celebrity apprentice. When he won the presidency, I sent him the same note. Dear oh, Donald, right, right. you're arrogant, you're obnoxious, you're possibly evil, but you beat the hell out of everybody and you're the president of the United States. So we had that little thing going. But on Celebrity Apprentice, what I remember most vividly was that he was a very different character in those boardrooms for three hours a night than I ever saw when he was president. When he was president, he was the ultimate alpha male. I believe playing a role. I believe we didn't see the real Donald Trump. We saw the disagreeable side of him most of the time. The bully boy, the the braggart, the you know the the, the alpha guy who would never apologize for anything because it's too weak. He was abusive. He was disrespectful, and so on. In the boardroom for hour after hour, he could be very uh, heartfelt. He could be very um, moved by people. He could be very funny. He could be very warm. Um, I remember all those things. I'm thinking, what happened to that guy? Why don't you show the world any of that stuff? Because if you did, it would be incredibly disarming. So I I won the show. That I then went back into Celebrity Apprentice each year as one of his boardroom advisors for a few years. Then I joined CNN, interviewed him 30, 40 times at CNN. Um, and then he becomes the president of the United States. And suddenly I've got this guy that I've become pretty friendly with who used to ring me every three or Recording on Zoom? Who still does that? Thankfully, with Riverside. we got a bully ad we're dealing with. Sorry. We'll get back to this. Jordan Peterson and Pierce uh, Morgan discussing who is Donald Trump really? Let's go back. About life. And now he's the most powerful man in the world. Um, from a loyalty perspective, which I think is a trait overlooked with Trump, I when I uh, when he became president, I rang him and I said to him, you know, well, actually, first I would say when I left CNN, he was one of only three or four people in America who bothered to contact me afterwards, and he contacted me every every month for a few months. How are you doing? Are you okay? Can I help you? Right now, people might say he had a vested interest in case you popped back with a big job, or maybe, but so did lots of people, and he was one of only a handful of people that bothered to actually contact me regularly to check I was okay and could he help. I never forgot that. Similarly, when he won the presidency, I rang him and we had a chat about a week later. And I, I said, I just said one favor. Of course, champ. He used to always call me champ because I won his show. Of course, champ. What is it? I said, I just want to have your first international television interview. I know you're going to do a domestic one in America, but first international, done, done. And a few months later, I was at Davos in Switzerland, a 45-minute wide-ranging interview with the President of the United States, which was spectacularly good for my career, and he kept his word. So Trump, if you were loyal to him, was very, very, very loyal back. You know, I've fallen out with him recently because I just can't buy into all this stolen election nonsense, and I've told him to his face, and he just, he just want to hear it. Got another, got another ad here. We're trying to negotiate this other. I just think for you out there who believe that the media tells you who Donald Trump is, I mean, this is a person who's had personal experiences. And then I want you to hear Jordan Peterson after the fact, after Morgan explains who Trump, who he perceives Trump to be, Peterson gives some sort of a, um, a clinical evaluation of what sort of person he believes uh, Trump is. It's kind of an interesting back and forth. And to me, I mean, it's the most fair account that I've heard of of this 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 figure that half the country admires, adores, respects, would vote for again, and the other half of the country who just find him totally disgusting 
totally reprehensible. I don't want him anywhere near the levers of power. Now, now Morgan just said, you know, loyalty is a big deal to Trump. But, but he did say it plays both ways. We've heard a lot of people, the never-Trump crowd, say loyalty is a one-way street with, uh, with Donald Trump. Pierce Morgan said, no, it's a two-way street with Trump. Let's go back to the interview. Morgan continues, and then Jordan Peterson, who is professionally and clinically trained, kind of gives his two cents worth. Well, I think part of the reason, I'm going to lay out some theories, and you tell me if I'm wrong, okay? Um, I think part of what happened to Trump was that that tough part of him played well, especially to working class people. And I think that there was an element of that that was very genuine, especially contrasted with Hillary Clinton and the Democrats, uh, what would you call it, patronizing attitude towards working class people. That Trump could speak to people directly and he had that bluntness that disarmed them in some sense and made them believe that he was, at least in, in many ways, dealing an honest hand. Now, he suffered a tremendous amount of assault through vitriol when he was running for president and when he was president, probably more than any president that I can remember, including Richard Nixon, who I think might have run second for having most abuse dumped on him. And, and whether or not that's deserved is independent. I think in Trump's case, it was, it was over the top in quite a remarkable way. And so I think that that probably elicited more of that bullying behavior that might be perhaps a weakness. I've been trying to understand him and the bullying, the last interview you did with him, I believe, one of the things I noted about Trump was that he would do something about every 10 minutes that was markedly out of the ordinary conversationally. And so I watch for that because I'm a clinician. And so I always watch people talk to see when they're going off script, let's say, because there's always something underneath that. And one of the things Trump does, and I don't know how much of this is conscious and how much of it is reactive and how much of it has become habitual, is he'll say utterly proper, uh, he'll say, he'll make statements that are way over the top. So I think he said, for example, when you were interviewing something like, I tell the truth more than anyone ever has in history. Or he's, and then he said about 10 minutes later, something like, I've run the best administration in American history. And they're over-the-top, preposterous statements. And they have this self-aggrandizing element that's got a juvenile flavor to it. And I'm not doing a global critique of Trump's personality because I suspect, as you've already indicated, that he's a multifaceted person. But there's an element of him that's, it's, he's got this 10-year-old bully part of him that also has a, um, a compensatory element. And so to say, you know, I tell the truth more than anyone has in history or something along those lines, I think, well, like, who are you comparing yourself here to exactly? Like, do you, you tell the truth more than Jesus Christ? You run a better administration than Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. And, <laughs> and it, it's marked because people don't generally do that in conversation, right? They don't come out with a preposterous statement about how remarkable they are with some degree of regularity. And now it seems to me to be associated with some other tendencies that he has. Like, he has a tendency to nickname people. And he has unerring accuracy in doing that, and it can be devastating. And that also reminds me of someone who's like a very professional 11-year-old bully. And a few of them can bring a teacher to their knees if their attacks are targeted. And they can certainly do that with their classmates. And so I wonder with Trump if he's been, so he's pushed into a corner because of all the vitriol. 
the bullying and braggadocio tendency has become exaggerated. Maybe he's more surrounded by sycophants now than might be helpful. Now, I don't know that for sure, but it looks to me like something that like that is happening. And he's trying to calibrate himself, even during your interview, because he comes out with these statements, something like, well, look at how wonderful I am. And I think, well, maybe if he would have got credit for some of the things that he did that were actually pretty positive, like not having America dragged into a war and like also fostering the Abraham Accords, that he wouldn't be so inclined to be compensatory in that manner. And then that bullying tendency seems to me the inverse of that is this victimization routine, which he's wandered into. Now, Trump claims the elections were stolen by corruption. And I would say part of the reason people find that credible is because the American left-wing establishment and the liberal establishment, for that matter, were unbelievably vitriolic to Trump and stooped pretty much to anything in order to devalue and criticize him, no matter how unfair and how over the top. And that generated a fair bit of sympathy on people's part. And I think it generated a sense that he was, in some global sense, treated unfairly. But I, I can't see that there's any legal evidence that's been compelling that he's been able to bring forth that the elections were legally um, conducted in an improper and corrupt manner. And so then what I see happening with Trump is that he's fallen prey to the very victimization narrative that he purports to stand against. And so he's gone off brand. It's like, well, Mr. Trump, you're the winner. You're the guy who doesn't have things stolen from him by, by callow fools. You're the leader of the free country. You can stand up to the dictator of North Korea and to Vladimir Putin himself. You're a winner. And that's your brand. And yet the election was stolen from you. And now your story is it was stolen and everything's corrupt and all the institutions are corrupt, which is exactly what the left-wing radicals are saying. And there's very little positive messaging tied up in that. And it's hamstringing the Republicans. And so well, that's, that's how it looks to me. And so I'm wondering, you know Trump very well. I, am I not giving the devil his due in this situation? Am I off in my analysis in some important way? No, I think you're spot on. And I think some interesting points you raised there. I mean, I've always thought Trump is a unique character in that he has the thickest skin of anybody I've ever seen in public life and also the thinnest skin. So he'll react with ridiculous oversensitivity to every slight and come out punching, but he's able to withstand the kind of pressure or scandal that would engulf and destroy every other politician I've ever encountered. There's kind of an interesting, I mean, I don't know for, for, the, for, ah, for what that's worth, hmm. I think that is a more reasoned evaluation of Trump, the person. Now, once again, the politician, the man, the, the husband, the father, didn't delve in his personal life much, more about his personality traits. And, and what makes him tick? What makes him say these things? And I think that's fair. I mean, I think that was a very fair evaluation from someone who knows Donald Trump in a personal way, that being uh, Pierce Morgan, and someone who's forming an opinion from afar as a clinician or a clinically trained person um, who sees certain personality traits and characteristics, and then you group someone at A, B, C, D, E, or G. I mean, it, it is true. I mean, Trump does have this multifaceted persona that is hard to really, I mean, you can't put him in a box, but so big. See, th there's a big belief out there, or there's a, there's a fair debate out there. Is Trump the most complex man in human history, or he's the most simple man in human history? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I think yes. I mean, he's an absolute total um, complication, but but he's also very simple. 
and um and I think when um when when Pierce and um Peterson begin talking about the the bully mentality I mean that's Trump I mean you know that I mean he bullies himself around and I mean remember I mean the day I knew the election was over I mean the day that I mean that there was no point this was the point of no return when you got Republican presidential candidates looking at their hands comparing the size of their hands in a nationally televised debate. <laughs> I mean, that that's the moment in time that I said, holy crap. I mean, wh- where, where are we? You know, wh- where do we go from here? Oh, that's but, true. But it was I his forgot world. about that. But I mean, it was his world. Yeah. And you've got that debate happening um, center stage of not just American politics, but global politics. And he is very comfortable in that sort of setting. Nobody else was. If you watch the body language of everybody else on that stage, they were like, I don't want any part of this. I mean, this is not what I came here for. And Trump knew that the more uncomfortable he could make those people who are accustomed to being very comfortable, the the, the bigger advantage he had. Now, he's also, to um, Pierce's point, he's the most thin-skinned human in, him, in human history. I mean, he, he can't take a joke. He can't take a jab. He's got to respond. He's got to return fire. He's got to uh, counter punch to the punch. And, you know, most politicians will say, man, you can't respond to every charge. I mean, you just can't. You'll drive yourself nuts. You got to forget what some of these people are saying about you. I mean, you're the president, but he couldn't do that. But but he also persevered, right? I mean, he plowed through things. And I think one thing that Peterson said is so interesting that, that maybe Trump's self-absorbed um, comments were because nobody else gave him his due. Right. All he I got mean, was vitriol, even when he did some things that are pretty monumental and successful and positive. So if I don't defend myself, nobody will. And the only way I'll defend myself is to compare myself to Jesus. You know, right, right, and I remember him saying that. I mean, he said, I'm the most honest man in the history of mankind. Um, and I remember like, well, what, how do you, I mean, what, what do you mean? I mean, n- nobody's the most honest man in the history of mankind. But, but he, I mean, how do you fix your mouth? I mean, that would be my, my, my mom would say, how does someone fix their mouth to say, I'm the most honest human being in the history of mankind? But he would say over-the-top things like that. And I think Jordan Peterson is very interesting in his evaluations of Trump. But I don't think there was anything in that 12 minutes unfair. I mean, is all of it accurate? Probably not. I mean, I doubt Peterson gets everything right about Trump. I doubt Pierce Morgan knows every nuance about Trump's personal, private, professional life. But I think those two people offer an interesting perspective into, I mean, it, it, they talked a little bit about Trump derangement syndrome. I mean, they didn't call it that, but they both did. I mean, they touched on the fact that there's some out there that will never give him any credit for anything other than being divisive and narcissistic and and nasty and a and a cancer on America's political system. I mean, I don't buy that for a second. I mean, I think Trump was the the the, the great redeemer when it comes to evaluating or, or forcing us to evaluate who we are and how we're governed. I mean, I think the history. I mean, I don't know if history will shine a bright light on Trump because history is written by academics and journalists, and you're not going to find many academics or journalists to give Trump a fair shake. But if if history was written by the 300 smartest people in America, it would speak fondly of Trump and his presidency because smart people understand the complexities of Trump the man, uh, the myth, the legend, so to speak. Uh, I think it's interesting that Piss Morgan said, I wanted to win the contest, so I need to kiss his butt. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just did say things that he wants to hear said. So, so there's the simpleton. You know what I mean? I've said a lot that men are Jeeps. I mean, if three or four, whatever, two or three things in our life are okay, yeah, we're, we're we're good. 
I mean, women are far more sophisticated. I mean, I've said it before. Men are Jeeps. Women are Ferraris. I mean, there's a $20 part that stops a $200,000 car from running. Uh, men just kind of um, put some duct tape on it. You know, I'll be okay. Or so, so I think Trump is an embodiment of both of those personalities when it comes to um, who he is, what he stands for, what he believes in. But, but I think that was very fair. I don't know what you got out of it. But the majority of our listeners have a positive opinion of Donald Trump. There was somebody who knows Trump at a personal level, somebody who gave him a fair critique from afar, um, who is clinically educated and knows how to evaluate some of those personalities. What did you make of it, Rev? Well, that part was interesting because this is a little, I guess, professional insight into some of the personality traits of Trump that you wonder, even as a, as someone who supports and likes him, you wonder why he says things like that. And and what Peterson said there kind of makes sense to me. I mean, it, how could it not? But you I would mean, admit he said over-the-top things. I mean, just totally, oh gosh. I mean, just completely and totally over-the-top. Did, did it bother you when he said those things? I mean, when Trump said, we run the, we run the best administration in the history of any president, I mean, did, did, I you just— It didn't bother me. I just didn't pay much attention. Because you think you understand yeah, Trump. And, and now that you—I mean, you kind of listen to that, and you think— the vitriol that came from traditional news media, for example, if they were honest brokers and if they led the story with President Trump today brokered this you know, Middle Eastern peace deal, the Abraham's Accords that could have positive you know, uh, effects for generations. He wouldn't have to say I'm the greatest man in history. Right. Right. And so maybe that, I mean, it kind of makes a little sense. It there, does. What it Peterson does. said, that's why this is interesting. And, and Peterson said in your interview, he said three or four over-the-top things. <laughs> and we heard him say over-the-top thing after over-the-top thing. The top, but the but he also said there's some of this that is Trump the provocateur. You know, can I be relatable to the working guy? See, I have this belief that Trump wishes he had worked for a concrete company. You know, he talks a lot about the working class. He talks a lot about the guy that drove the concrete truck or the guy that, you know, um, the, the pile driver on some of the hotels they build. I mean, he's always, there, there's a certain endearment he has with that person. And I've just always wondered, I mean, he doesn't want to be, I mean, I think Trump would rather have a jet than not. He'd rather have a supermodel wife than not. He'd rather have a penthouse apartment in New York City than not. But there's something about him and this endearment he has, or this, I mean, I'll, I'll say it, it's almost an infatuation he has with these people who kind of rallied to his defense. Uh, once again, he's not going to give up the jet to be a, a concrete um, contractor. He's not going to give up the supermodel wife to, um, you know, to stand in line like regular people do to get in a, a halfway decent restaurant. I mean, that's not who Trump is, and he would never give up what he's got in the name of that. But there's something about that way of life that he finds very fulfilling, very gratifying. And when you read Art of the Deal or some of these other things he said, I mean, his father even said Donald loves staying on the construction site. I mean, he likes associating with these people. And I just wonder if they're in some unfulfilled cracker crevice in his life that that kind of way of life, I mean, he finds some gratification and satisfaction in that. Let's take a break. We'll be back. Got a caller. Hang in there. Back in a minute. I have no idea what you got out of that. I thought it was interesting and a little bit curious to see what I felt was a somewhat of an honest attempt to account for who Donald Trump is. Let's go to the phone. Dan in Florence. Good morning, Dan. Uh, Ken, appreciate what you did this morning. I, I, I mean, I really, really appreciate that interview. Uh, I didn't get to hear all of it. But I can tell you what I got out of it. Um, 
the you look at Trump, his whole presence, he was called a liar. Everything he said wasn't true. Uh, everywhere he turned, people said he's a buffoon, he's a clown. Okay, and then as time goes on, you find out a lot of the things Trump was saying are actually true. So somebody should actually compile a list of all the things that he was called a liar about that has since been from from how to treat COVID to the, the to the election. You can go on and on. And now half the country are election deniers. All right. And uh, the point is, the further we go into this, the more evidence we see that there was collusion against Trump. Well, there was the FBI and the DOJ and maybe even the CA were, 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 were acting against it. And a lot of that came out in, in the Durham trials. Uh, and, uh, a lot of evidence that, that, that Hillary was involved in, in the Steele dossier. All of that stuff that he said. Now, the reason I bring that up is you take a person that now, thanks to your interview you played, I see Trump as a person that's very prone not to react well to that. He's thin-skinned when it comes to criticism. He's narcissistic, all of that stuff. So it helped me kind of understand, well, I think Trump got treated like crap, right? But look at his personality, according to this interview and what came out of that. And you, at least I, begin to understand you might not like it, and condone it or whatever, but I'm beginning to understand, well, why did he react that way? Uh, I mean, he was – a lot of bad things did happen to him that weren't fair and weren't true. But now I kind of see a little bit of why he reacted the way he did and why he's not likely to ever give that up. So that, that's my, that was my take on it, and, and I really appreciate you doing that. Thank you. That's a lot. I mean, I appreciate that um, thoughtful response to um... – the uh, I just watched it twice last night, and I told Rev, I said, hey, if we get a minute in the 9 o'clock hour, let's play this, because I think some of our listeners will find it a bit interesting. And look, I mean, it, no, nobody knows exactly what Trump is and what makes him tick. I mean, I guess Melania and his kids do, but the majority of us are making an opinion or a judgment from afar. Pierce Morgan knows the guy fairly well, about as well as a friend would know another friend. Um, and Jordan Peterson does that for a living. I mean, he makes these evaluations and diagnosis from um, certain personality traits and characteristics of how human beings respond and act. Um, I mean, I think I don't want to, I don't want to say this in in an arrogant, egotistical way. I think I understand Trump a little bit. I mean, I do. I think I can relate in some way, shape or form to not being allowed. I mean, in my political world, I mean, the, the one regret I have is the way I feel about not being treated fairly. And, I, and I'll tell you, I don't care how thick your skin is, and I don't care how much you can move on and how much you put in the rearview mirror and, you know, this horse threw me off, I find another. When you fundamentally believe that you've been treated unfairly, it scars you to some degree. I mean, it, you, you hold on to that. There's something that you kind of bury in your soul. And I think Trump really buried that in his soul, and he's not a dummy, and I think Trump knows, and I think most of you know, whether you hate him or not, that he was never treated fairly, was never treated like other presidents were treated. I think Rev asked me during the break, why? I mean, what was it about Trump that the media felt so motivated to try and I seek and destroy? That out. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, it would take longer than you and I have, but I think it goes to power. 
and you know where, where the deck chairs are and here comes a guy that is a one-man wrecking crew and we just can't let him move these deck chairs so we've got to vilify we've got to condemn but we've got to do whatever it takes to devalue that's jordan peterson's uh, his administration his capabilities and capacities so so i do think there's a lot of um uh, psychological psychiatric evaluations that go into why they felt so compelled to destroy his presidency to 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 devalue anything he may have had to contribute on the uh on in the world of american politics but i'll say it and i'll stick by this um he's the greatest president of my lifetime and that includes ronald reagan i mean there's never been a president whose worldview aligned with mine that went to washington and did as much of what he said he was going to do so by that metric donald trump is the best president since i've been on this planet Let's go to the phone. And all the while dealing with the collusion investigation, special counsel for the first I mean, two years. People and, trying to destroy his life. And a couple of impeachment votes. And now and we're trying to destroy people that were associated with Donald Everybody. Trump. Let's go to the phone. Michael in Florence. Hello, Michael. Good morning. I mean, I'm chocolate here. I, I kind of feel like I relate to Trump. I mean, I have a T-shirt that says, if you don't like Trump, you probably won't like me. And I have a bumper sticker on the back of my truck that says the same thing. So I kind of feel like I relate to him. I didn't see the interview, but I'm calling in because of your your talking about how he views the people who, you know, the pile drivers and the concrete masons and and all these people who build these things. And uh, I've worked in tech and I've cabled buildings and things. So I've worked in uh, new buildings, buildings that are being remodeled. You know, and I look at these electricians and they come in there every day for months, you know, and I mean, this guy probably put in 5,000 electrical outlets in that building in the months that he was there and pulled in miles and miles of wire. And I mean, I think it's simple as this. Trump has a lot of respect for people who, you know, get down there every day and take their time to do the repetition and do the work it takes to build these things, uh, of course, you know, he looks at them and, hey, you did that pretty much the opposite his predecessor who sat there and told us all, you didn't build that. Thank you, sir. Good evaluation. Mm. Appreciate the call. Very thoughtful. Yep. I thought that would provoke a response. You know, when someone's talking about the working class um, I've often said this, and I've said it to a group, given a speech one night, that if you took, um, if, if only people were allowed who have had manicures in their life to vote, Trump loses 90-10. If, P, if only people who have had calluses in their hands are allowed to vote, he wins 90-10. I mean, there's something different about his relationship with what I would perceive to be the American working class. I'm not saying that that people with callous hands are better than those who have had manicures. I'm not saying that those who have manicures are better than those who have had calluses in their hands. But there is a way of life associated with certain skills and trades and and work ethics. And I think whatever reason, and maybe, maybe, Rev, to your point, this is why they attacked him, because they knew he was relating to a universe of people who felt neglected, the forgotten man, you know, I mean, the America First movement was based on what? The belief that globalism and trade policy and all these others had uh, disadvantaged the American working class. And then I've said several times on the air, you know, I can't make the argument that we've outsourced or shipped overseas 
uh, the American middle class. I can argue that we've shipped across the the water via you know trade deals and global policies. The the wage increases the American middle class and working class uh, were due. I didn't say deserve because who deserves what? I mean, I think you know we're due would be a better way to explain that. And I've got no I've got no idea why when he showed up there was such a groundswell of energy unlike I'd ever seen before. I got a good liberal buddy of mine. Who, and I, I don't want to take credit for this. He, he gets the credit. But he told me one day um, about Trump. He said, Ken, Trump does not have a base. He has a following. Political candidates have a base. I mean, the, the base will turn out in Arizona. The base will turn out in Pennsylvania. The base will turn out in South Carolina. Donald Trump had a following. And you couldn't understand exactly who they were. You go to a Trump rally and there's a, a doctor with a Rolex standing beside a worker with dirt under his fingernails. And they're both America first. They're both um, 100% supportive of Trump. They're motivated by different things, but they're motivated by the same thing. And I do believe this. And, and I'll get a little bit um, cliché-ic and preachy here for a second. Um, Bolduck, Lake, Masters, Walker, Vance, Oz, um, Zeldin. I mean, if these candidates succeed... Next Tuesday, they're standing on the shoulders of Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis may be our next president. Why? Because he reminds people of Trump. J.D. Vance is Trump endorsed in Ohio. Blake Masters, Trump endorsed in Arizona. Kerry Lake, Trump endorsed. I mean, that's a big deal. Russell Fry, Trump endorsed. That has never mattered. I mean, that has never mattered in American politics. I mean, there's, a, there's an endorsement here and there that may carry some weight. But when, when, when Henry McMaster was endorsed by Donald Trump, Karen, Catherine Templeton became an also-ran. I mean, that's just the nature of it. Now, now, here's what disgusts me. Most of the GOP establishments in these varying states wish Trump would ride off in the sunset and go away. But once they realized he wasn't, how can we best use him? How can we best utilize him? And I hope with all my heart that America First doesn't sell its soul to some of the GOP leadership. I'm sorry. I mean, I think there's good leadership and I think there's bad leadership. I'm not worried about good and bad leadership. I want new leadership. I want different leadership. I don't want the same guys who have had the keys to the liquor cabinet for the past 30 years to continue to have once Bolduck and Lake and Masters and Walker and Vance and Oz and Zeldin get elected. I mean, a couple of those are stretches. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, if Bolduck wins, I will be surprised. If Zeldin wins, I will be surprised. But if they win, the only reason they're politically viable is Donald Trump chose to engage on behalf of their campaign in the name of America first. And that's where I want this party to go. When I watched J.D. Vance last night on Fox News, I mean, it was just it was emotional for me because I kind of identified this guy early. And I saw when Trump intervened, and I knew the Peter Thiel story, and I knew J.D. had crossed paths with, with Thiel and Blake Masters. I mean, it's almost like, hey, we're getting the band not back together, but together for the first time ever. And how many of you ever heard of Peter Thiel? How many of you ever heard of Blake Masters? How many of you ever heard of uh, J.D. Vance? Very few. But Trump gets endorsed by Thiel of the Republican National Committee and, I, and I, I still go back to that moment in time. I remember thinking, okay, we got a, a brander and a marketer, and we got a rich guy. 
I mean, Trump's rich, but not as rich as as uh, Peter Thiel. I mean, Thiel's got you know blank you money, and 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 you know having somebody with blank you money on your team and willing to invest in these candidates. I mean, guys, think about this. Mitt Romney is going to enjoy a Republican majority if Blake Masters gets elected, but he pulled the money, and Peter Thiel stepped up and took his place. So Peter Thiel put his personal wealth in Arizona. When the Senate leadership fund, who are desirous of having a majority, refuse to. That tells you all you need to know about who those rat, you know, what's are with the GOP establishment. Take a break. Back in a minute. Maybe you saw this or not, but Liz Cheney was interviewed by NPR. Judy, uh, Judy Woodruff, I think, was the person doing the interview for NPR. It was at the Cleveland City Club. That's one of these um, globalist interventionist um, clubs that get together and speak on behalf of American politics. But I want to quote Cheney. Now, once again, she is a Republican member of the House of Representatives, represented the great state of Wyoming, one of the reddest states in America. I mean, I got told when I was running for lieutenant governor in South Carolina, got to be careful, this ain't Wyoming. I mean, Wyoming is a plus 24, plus 28, plus 30 state when it comes to Republican Democrat. But here's what they're sitting U.S. Congresswoman said um, yesterday. I want to say a word. Yeah, Republican. Okay. I want to say a word about Speaker Pelosi. There are many, many issues, maybe most issues, on which we disagree. But I think she's a tremendous leader. I watched her up close. She is a leader of historic consequence. People just need to understand what it will mean to have a Republican majority in the House of Representatives. The people who will be running the House of Representatives and a Republican majority will give authority and power to some of the most radical members of Congress, and I don't think that's good for the country. Talking about crying over spilled milk mm. or being an ungracious loser, um, we should be so over the Bushes and Cheneys until it's ridiculous. And the quicker we accept that we, the Republican primary voter, should never have given the Bush-Cheney regime the authority we did, the better off all of us are in moving forward in effective governance. Let's go to the phone. Jim and Florence. Hello, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. Real quick uh, for everyone, the best way we can send a message in the PD, I think, um, through this election is to vote straight ticket in the sense of hitting straight ticket, not just going through the ballot and hitting every Republican. They track that number of who presses that button specifically. Um, so I think that's the best way we can send a message. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. Could agree more. I mean, I think there's a, um, you know, rallying around the home team. Once again, I, I'm a little bit like Liz Cheney. I mean, she talked about, you know, um, the Democrat. There are a lot of things about the Republican Party I don't like. I mean, I, my mindset is more libertarian. But I accept that I can't win. I'm, I'm, I'm irrelevant if I go down the libertarian road. I went to reason.org yesterday to see what they had to say about Mark Victor, you know, getting out of the race in Arizona. And, I mean, it was kind of interesting. They, they don't trust uh, Masters on crime. They don't trust him on drugs. They don't trust him on immigration because he's not a purist. I mean, he thinks what, the government should regulate immigration. The government should regulate um, crime. The government should regulate uh, drug use and whatnot. And libertarians are kind of the... Um, I mean, the live and let live crowd. And I, and I am very much on that team. My natural mindset is probably more that than it is anything else. But but I think Jim's right. Let's rally the troops. Let's circle the wagons. Let's get Republicans elected. And I hardly ever say that. I mean, I'm the guy that says, vote for the candidate of which you think can do the best job. You know, some of these local elections, they're not hyperpartisan. Forget what Washington does and says and how it acts and, and behaves. You know, vote for a county council or city council member. No, I would encourage our listeners to vote Republican 
as many times as you possibly can. And I'm not talking about the Chicago way of multiple votes for one person. I'm talking about, I mean, if you vote for a Republican straight <laughs> ticket, you've just, as Jim said, you've just, you know, kind of kind of proven your, I don't know, Rev, you've, um, you've validated your principles by voting against the Democrats. The socialist embracing Democrats must be beat in as many races as they possibly, or as we possibly can beat them in all the way down to mayor's races, city council, county council. Yeah, vote red. Right. Not for a wave, but rather a realignment. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.